0: a wise
1: guy, eh? Yes, he is. He's the wise guy of fantasy baseball. And I'll talk with Gene McCaffrey next on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
1: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 8th. It's show number 34 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season and our last regular season show of 2023. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. In part one, we'll discuss some items in the news and starting pitchers for 2024. And in part two, Gene and I will talk about post-hype hitters, The 2024 catcher scene, his boons and banes for 2024, and a couple of cool music acts. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters including J.P. Crawford, Alejandro Kirk, and Shea Langeliers, and pitchers Jason Adam, Robert Stevenson, and Mason Miller. Then we'll head over to the National League with hitter news including Jackson Churio, Patrick Bailey, and Joey Manessas, and pitchers Sandy Alcantara. Bobby Miller and Brandon Fott. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee left handed starter Robert Gasser. And in the extra innings comment, I'll be talking about the end of another Baseball HQ radio season. It's another big Friday Full Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the last one of the season. You bet we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, Patrick, great to be here.
1: Well, it's great to have you. Uh, Usually we get you on right at the start of the season, and uh, now we're getting you right at the end. How many drafts have you played this year, Gene, and how are your teams doing?
0: Uh, I only have three 15 15 teamers this year, and it's the worst year ever for all of them. I might finish 10th in one league. However, I'm not crying because it's my best year ever in DFS. And I'm actually making a profit this year. I still haven't won any of the big tournaments, but I finished high enough to have turned a profit this year so far. And uh, I even cashed out and slapped a check on the table to my wife and said, here, baby. And there's more where that came from.
1: Ron Chandler always said uh, the key to having a successful rotisserie or fantasy baseball career was sharing your winnings with your significant others. So that was a wise uh, tactical move by you for sure. Right what hitters have been doing well for you this year in your teams and in your DFS?
0: Well, as you can imagine with my teams being so terrible, not many, but, um, I do have Matt Olson on several teams. Um, you know, as a high pick, he was the, a guy that came out all right. And, uh, um, later on, I have Spencer steer on all my teams and he's been a nice, um, he hasn't been great, but he's been solid contributor across the board. Um, and basically, I mean, that's the story of my season is that my secondary hitters have just been terrible, you know. And uh, we won't even talk
1: about my pitching. I was going to say, what about your pitching?
0: Well, I did get the relievers right. I, I have Duran and uh, Felix Bautista. I, I did get the closers right. I mean, there was a, I think the right way to do that this year, as it is for many years, is to look at the top group and uh, pick one guy that you can you comfortable with him falling to you and i mean to me there was absolutely no reason for felix bautista to be the fifth or sixth closer off the board i don't see what why josh Hader or uh, you know diaz i could see you know edward diaz i could see but even him you know i mean when you're talking about saves you're talking about domination what's the difference um so i i think that's the right way to play closes and that has worked out for
1: I had Diaz in, in one of my drafts. And of course he got hurt even before the, I think he got hurt the night at the night after the draft. I was, uh, I was uh, playing and I, I got him and he got hurt later that evening. And I think one of the surprising things about Diaz is When you're drafting closers, of course, you're always expecting or kind of counting on the team to win a lot of games. And I think people were expecting the Mets to win a lot of games. And I don't know that they were expecting Baltimore to win a lot of games. And of course, the actual reverse turned out to be true.
0: Yeah, but I think that it was pretty clear that Baltimore was not going to be a hundred loss team. I mean, it was... uh, I mean, they've surprised people, but I, they looked like a pretty good team going into this year and with all their prospects. And, you know, if you believed in their prospects, which I did, um, and their pitching had greatly improved. So I, I think that they were, it was a pretty easy call that they were not, as long as your closers not on a team that's going to lose 95 or more games, it doesn't matter to me at all. You can still get 35, 40 saves.
1: You mentioned having done well in DFS this year. What's been your secret? What's been your approach?
0: it's always been the same. I mean, I just do do my preparation. I think I've been a little luckier this year and, uh, you know, having the extra good days, um uh, picking, you know, I'm always looking for guys who are going to hit home runs. Cause if you're going to hit one, you can hit two. And that's really what you want. These guys who have two home runs. And, um, I stopped, I've, I'm almost exclusively playing fan duo rather than, uh, Rather than DraftKings, because I think it's much easier to just deal with one starting pitcher. Um, there are occasions where that's not true, where there are two, you know, great options sticking out. But um, generally speaking, I think it's easier, and also think the salaries um, are easier to cheat on on FanDuel this year. So it may vary from year to year, but I think that's been the case this year.
1: Now you said that you haven't taken down any tournaments, but you're finishing high enough that you're turning a regular profit.
0: Yeah, I mean I finished, uh, you know, in the top ten of a couple of big tournaments, and you know once you get into the thousands, then that's fine, and um, yeah, you know, it's enough for me to turn a profit anyway. And um, you know, as I said, the um, you really want to win one to you know to get into the big money, but um, you know, in the in the I, I've been over the years. I you know I started out I was winning about twenty percent, and that's been going up and up and up. Last year was twenty seven, and this year I'm well over thirty percent, which to me is fantastic. It's a little misleading because once I had a bankroll, I started playing some double ups, and that that affects it a little bit. But still, it was it's been enough to turn a profit so far and to cash out. You know, it's not a profit till the money's in your hand, right?
1: That's certainly right, as anybody who invests can tell you as well. Now, you said that uh, playing more double ups had affected your return. Why is that?
0: Well, it affected the percentage of times that I'm cashing. You know, to make it well over thirty percent. Oh, excuse. I
1: see. But the but the payoff is uh, quite a quite a bit lower. Yeah.
0: Right. That's right. You know, in other words, it sounds a little better than it is, but it's still, you know, I mean, still, probably about thirty percent in my in my tournament cashings, which is really good. You know, it's just you just want that elusive one more. You know, there was one night I needed, give me one single, and it's twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, instead, you know, instead of a thousand dollars, you know, and it's it, it makes a big difference.
1: Oh, sure, it does. I I can uh, only imagine what it's like to sit on the edge of your seat waiting for that one single and not getting it. Uh, Imagine you'd think, well, a thousand is better than nothing, but gosh, it's kind of painful to be that close and come up short. Yes, it is.
0: And it has happened to me many, many times. But one of these days it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to happen big.
1: Well, that's how you have to approach it, right? I mean, at a certain point, your skill and acumen get you to a, a position within the, within the night's game, and then it's luck once you get into that sort of top 10%, it's, it's pretty much all down to luck at that point.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, there's no, I suppose there is a, an, an element of skill in being able to say, well, Zach McKinstry's going to hit two home runs tonight and somebody's got it, um, but it's not really skill. I mean, it, it's an educated guess at best, be a good educated guess, and, you know, g- given the salary and that sort of thing.
1: And the matchup and, and the park and all of those kind of things, well, weather even a lot of players take a look at, but still <laughs> two home runs from Zach McKinstry is right. not something that you kind of say, well, this is something I can write into the, into the book, like a, uh, like a right. Max Scherzer start, which you can't actually do that either.
0: Well, I mean, it's generally speaking, it, it, it's a really good play to take anybody who's batting first or second, and he's really cheap, and he's not facing a great team. I mean, you have a guy like that, that's sort of a gimme, and he should be at least part, you know, if you're having multiple teams, which I often do, not always, but, uh, you know, you should, should be taking a chance with those guys. Those are, you know, good percentage plays. Opportunity equals opportunity.
1: And the, you want those top of the order guys just because they amass more plate appearances? Exactly.
0: Yeah. More chances. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right.
1: I'm curious uh, what you think about some items that have happened in the news of late, Gene. Uh, always appreciate your analysis. And we've seen a lot of prospects coming up and playing in the latter stages of the year. Uh, the question I think is whether this is a new reality for MLB clubs because of the changes in the call-up rules and so on. How do you think we should be adjusting our thinking or at least thinking about thinking of adjusting our thinking for next season based on what we've seen this season?
0: Well, you leave me no choice but to adjust how I adjust. <laughs> um, I think it's great that that the teams are doing this. Um, it's great for the players. It's great for the teams. It's great for the fans, and it's great for us. Um, among other things, it gives us a you know a sort of a preview look at the guys for next year. In many cases, now we'll know that these guys are going to be playing full time next year. Um, in addition to giving us, you know, a, a look at how they're doing against the major league talents, and I mean, there's a lot of these guys, and a lot of them are really, really promising. Um, I mean, Dominguez. I mean, the guys that you that you mentioned, uh, Mauricio, um, Austin Wells, Alexander Canario, Nick Lofton, Sedan Rafaela. I mean, all of those guys, I like. I love next year with the possible exception of Wells, because he's a catcher and uh, I always worry about catchers and especially young catchers. And it's not like there's any lack of, uh, the position is not as scarce as it was before. But I mean, these guys, these other guys, I mean, Jason Dominguez looks like a cross between Mickey Mantle and Bernie Williams, which is a hell of a baseball player. Uh, Mauricio looks like he's, uh, um, O'Neal, Cruz, Ellie De La Cruz, Light, which could be a great player because he's got a smaller strike zone and he might hit for a higher average than those guys. If not, be quite equal to them in other things. Not that that's a done deal. He could be just that good. But um, Canario um, and Lofton have real good power potential with some speed, and Rafaela could be the best out of all of them as a you know as a multi talented across the board contributor. and so I mean to me this is it's a great thing for us.
1: How do you think the possibility that the teams are going to continue to do this, bring these guys up in in numbers as they have this year, how do you think that's going to affect our or how do you think it should affect our fab management for next year?
0: Well, I think you Gonna save. She should save some money for later on. I'm, uh, I, you know, when it comes to Fab, I'm a guy who's in, spend early and often. um I may adjust that a little bit next year. You know, try to spend a little bit less in the anticipation of more talent coming into the league as as it goes on. I'm going to play it by ear. I'm going to be a little more conservative, but I I'm still going to go for what I need to go when I need get what I need when I need it.
1: And we talked about this, uh, the other week on Baseball HQ Radio. I don't remember which show it was, but it was fairly recently. And, and the idea came up that even if you have a chance to get a Jason Dominguez, you're still only getting him for 25 games. Whereas if you get a guy uh, in April, you're getting him for 150 games and there's, there's a lot of value in that, that you can't just overcome by getting a better player later.
0: Yeah, that's true, but of course the teams have been calling these guys up earlier too. I mean, uh, Ellie De La Cruz would be a perfect example. I mean, he was up pretty early or early enough. Um, and again, the, the handwriting was on the wall for that. Um, you could see that it, it would probably pay the Reds to call him up even if he wasn't quite ready. I mean, you could argue that he isn't really quite ready, but really he is because he's so spectacular. I mean, if he's going to be inconsistent, which I think he is, um, it doesn't matter. You just live with it because he's, he's so awesomely talented.
1: There was also a flurry of waivers and waivers claims on August 29th, which is the last day that you can claim a player and keep his playoff eligibility. Uh, the Angels, quite notoriously, waived right handers Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez and Matt Moore, and they also waived Hunter Renfro and Randall Grichuk, and everybody got claimed except for Grichuk. The pitchers all went to Cleveland, and Renfro went to Cincinnati. How does this unusual mass waivers dump and claim augur for the future? where fantasy baseball is concerned. Are we going to see more of this kind of thing?
0: Well, you might with the teams with the really high payrolls, because that seems to be the reason for this. Um, they were trying to get under the, the luxury tax, uh, cap, as I understand it. Um, which I, I guess makes sense for them after they, after their plan, a failed spectacularly, I guess they switched off to plan B, which was dumb salary. Um, I don't know how much of an effect it has. I, I think it, the, the quality of the players involved is such that they can have a nice impact in an AL or an NL league for the guys who are switching leagues. But in the mixed leagues, uh, it remains to be seen whether any of them are you know that much more valuable than what we already have, unless
1: you have a hole. I thought it was odd that Cincinnati needed pitching and claimed hitters, and Cleveland seemed to need hitters but claimed pitchers. What did you think?
0: Well, I think it means that Cincinnati didn't think much of the pitching that was available. Uh, for one, um, Cleveland—I I don't really know what they're doing. Um, I mean, you would have think, thought, that, you know, that they would have played Redfro or, you know, they definitely need him. Um, maybe what Cleveland is trying to do is just deepen their staff to the point where you know everybody has all these pitchers now that that are terrible that pitch in the fourth, fifth, and sixth innings, Um, and maybe they're just trying to deepen their staff and say, well, you know, there's two ways to win, you know, prevent runs or score runs, and even though we're pretty good at preventing runs, we, this is our opportunity to be better there. I I don't really know.
1: Kind of reminds me of that old joke, the food here is terrible. Yeah, and such small portions. (laughs) You know, yeah, we've got 27 pitchers. They all suck, but man, we got a lot of them.
0: Yeah, right. That's right.
1: I also thought it was interesting, Gene, that the Angels had themselves only acquired Giolito and Lopez at the deadline, and they gave up a couple of pretty decent prospects. Catcher Edgar Caro and left-hander Kai Bush, now they walk away from the trade. They got no Giolito, they got no Lopez, and they've got two fewer top prospects than they started with. How hard is it being a major league general manager?
0: Well, it's pretty hard when your plan A fails as spectacularly as theirs did, um, and it's hard to say. I mean, I, on the other hand, anybody who signs Anthony Rendon to a huge contract and expecting that he's going to be the answer for you, uh, kind of deserves what he gets. Um, not to be harsh, but um, you know, they they were a team. that would, They have their two superstars, and really, what they needed to do was fill out with a bunch of guys who could contribute here, there, and you know, maybe one other star player, and um, that's not really what they did. And, you know, Rendon with his, you know, I know he was a fine player and, um, but at the same time, I mean, he's injury prone and he's past his prime, certainly at the end of the contract. Um, so it was just, that's not the way, right way to go about it. I don't think.
1: Do you think there's a lesson here for fantasy managers about managing sunk costs?
0: Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, they always say, don't throw good money after bad. You know, good money, that's a, that's a phrase that gets me, uh, as if other people are dealing with spurious currency, you know. <laughs> but um roto players have to throw good money after bad. I mean, our, our costs are sunk. You know, I, I, I have Mike Trout, and he's out for the season or whatever he's out for. Um, I have to throw fair money at, at at somebody who can not replace them, but give me something i mean that's the nature of our game, so I mean we know all about some costs I don't think that I think we could teach them how to deal with them better than they can teach us
1: I'm thinking about all the fantasy managers I know though, and sometimes i'm guilty of this myself is You hang on to a guy way longer than you should just because he was a top draft pick or just because you invested a lot at the auction, things like that, when the handwriting is definitely on the wall. And at a certain point, you just have to say, this isn't working, and you have to cut the guy and just move on. And I think a lot of fantasy managers find that difficult sometimes.
0: I do. uh, I do, too. And I made a conscious effort to not do it this year. And you know what I did? I dumped Jose Barrios after two terrible starts, and I mean that kind of sealed my season right there, you know <laughs> as soon as I dropped him, he was great, you know and he hasn't been fabulous since then, but he's certainly been you know an effective pitcher that any roto team can use oh sure you know and i, I this has been I've been patient to a fault in the past, and uh, I, so i I don't know the answer to your question to be honest with you.
1: In a recent article at The Athletic, you unearthed a weird little nugget involving two top-drawer first basemen, Matt Olson and Pete Alonzo. What was this little oddity that you found, and how might we exploit it in next season's drafts?
0: Oh, I've been doing this for like four years in a row now. Um, they alternate with fantastic years. One will have a great year, and he'll go you know, early second round, and the next one will fall to the end of the third round, and you just take the other one um so this this year was the year for Olsen uh whereas last year it was for Alonzo uh so next year it's going to be for Alonzo again um now I think that they're probably going to be a little closer together in drafts I think Olsen might go I mean certainly the early second round also will be gone if Alonzo lasts until the end of the second round um I, that's what I would do. I would just say, okay, somebody's taken one. Now I'm going to take the other one with my next pick, which is how I've been doing it. And, um, and that works fine.
1: Just off the top of your head, are there any other situations like this where you can look at guys who just seem to be alternating their good years and less good years?
0: Uh, not that I have found, but I'm going to be looking over the winter as i as I do my research. And, uh, I'll let you know in, uh, next year, if I find anybody, I promise.
1: You also said that when you get your pick, it's, going, it's best to take the anti Matt Olson. And what did you mean by that?
0: Well, at that pick, so late first, early second round, the anti Matt Olson is a non first baseman, five category guy emphasis speed. Because you're going to get Alonzo with your next pick. So to set yourself up, you balance out in advance, as it were.
1: And you also said uh, a starting pitcher, if that's appropriate, which you doubt is going to be next year. Why is that?
0: Well, I, I mean, I just look at these guys, and, I, and I, I don't want any of them as early picks. You know, I see. It was interesting. I don't know if you saw that the, the, a lot of the Tout Wars guys did a, 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 a real draft, not a mock draft, when they did the first six rounds of a draft, similar to what we do at First Pitch Arizona. And no pitchers, I don't think any pitchers went in the first two rounds, but in the third round, third to sixth, a ton of them went. So I think people are still kind of locked into a, uh, I've got to get an ace, I've got to get two great pitchers, which is fine, but where are they? I mean, to me, I don't see a whole hell of a lot of difference between the number three, number four pitcher and the number 23, 24 pitcher. And I think that this may be our, uh, you know, our, uh, our edge for next year.
1: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from theathletic.com. And Gene, since we're talking about starting pitchers, there was another article you had at The Athletic where you discussed at length some of your starting pitcher thinking. And you're definitely marching to the sound of a different drummer. And when I wrote that, I thought, Billy Mercia, Jerry Nolan. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't sure.
0: My boys, that's an esoteric reference there. It is. Anybody anybody who gets that reference, I want to know you.
1: (laughs) Anyways, back to starting pitchers. You said the big starters are just not safe enough these days. So how do you think fantasy managers should, and in your opinion, probably will, adjust their thinking next year about starting pitchers?
0: Well, if this tout wars thing is any indication, they're not going to change their minds, which is fine. Um, I, I think the thing to do is to pick out, if you have a guy, two guys in the top 20 that you that you really like, um, take them when the run starts. If not, sit back and take two or three of them in the sixth, seventh, eighth round, um, which is not a strategy that I generally advocate, although, you know, like any other strategy, it can certainly work. But it, where the value is so spread out and not obvious to me that there are, that there are, you know, great pitchers to be had. Um, I think the thing to do is to sit back. You know, I could see uh, taking Derek Cole, um, he'll be the first to go. I, if you told me um, a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, yes, Spencer Strider, you know, And I do think that Spencer Strider is the most dominant pitcher in baseball now. But, you know, he got hammered last night and I'm checking his ERA now. And his ERA is 3.83. You know, I mean, that is not a guy that I want to take in the first round. Um, You know, I I agree his ex-ERA is better and you know, He's not going to have a 3.83 ERA at the end of the year, I don't think, as long as there's not something wrong with them, which of course is a distinct possibility. Um, but I'm just not going head over heels for these guys because I don't see that where the edge is.
1: So when you're talking about Spencer Strider and a well ERA getting closer to four than it is to three. All his ERA estimators are below three, actually. And I wonder how you react when you look at his expected ERA or FIP or xfip all these estimators, and you see them under the three mark. Does that fill you full of confidence, or what do you think?
0: Well, it tells me that there's a little bit of flukiness going on with him. Um, but at the same time, he's given up the home runs. You know, and that's, you know, last year he, he gave up about, I don't know, maybe half a home run per nine, and now he's well over one. And so it's very possible to me that the hitters are adjusting to him and, and FIP and ex-FIP haven't caught up with that yet. And I'm quite curious as to how he finishes.
1: As a more general rule, what do you think of ERA estimators?
0: Well, I think they're pretty good I think they're they're good for looking for anomalies and who's who's been abnormally lucky and who's been abnormally unlucky um tell you the truth, I think most of the estimators are more consistent with each other than they are with the actual stats that the that the uh that the pictures throw up now I'd give you a uh, an example on the other side um is Framer Valdez, who who I happen to really like. Uh, in fact, I would take him third, um, and I would be very happy if he was my ace next year. And his estimators think that he should be worse than he is. Now, with a guy like that, who to me, who to me has established what he's what he is, his real ERA is his expected ERA. I mean, the last four years, Framer Valdez's ERA is three point one three. Um, his ERA this year is three point three. One of the indicators says his ERA should be over four. I think that that tells me that the indicator is wrong. I mean, don't forget, with a guy like this, is the does the indicator tell you that this guy can get a double play basically anytime he wants one? Um, that's a tremendous weapon for a pitcher to have in his arsenal. And it doesn't seem to me to be accounted for in any of the estimators with the, you know, I don't know how you figure in ground ball rate, which is a factor sure sure that, but you know, as well as I do, that ground ball rate in itself does not make you a good pitcher. Why not? Well, because ground balls go through and, Even ground ball pitchers give up hard hits. And if you look at the most extreme, and they also strike out fewer batters. So there's more contact. There's more things that can happen. I mean, there's a lot of really good ground ball pitchers. But if you look at the top ground ball pitchers in any given year, you'll see a mix. This guy's great. This guy's not. Um, Same thing with fly ball pitchers.
1: Well, you've long been of the opinion that uh, a high fly ball pitcher is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Absolutely. They do strike out more guys. Um, they give up more home runs. But, you know, if they're not in a bandbox, box, uh, they have better whips because fly balls are outs, but more often than not, um, it's a wash. I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other, I think you want to mix. I mean, basically what I've seen over the years is the guys you don't want are the guys who are neither extreme fly ball or extreme ground ball pitchers, with the exception of the pitchers who are really fabulous, who can induce the kind of battered ball that they want when they need it, which is an extremely rare skill, you know, belonging to Hall of Famers exclusively.
1: Yeah, Greg Maddox pops to mind and and not many pitchers since. Uh, Getting back to Framber Valdez, you said he was the 24th starter off the board this year partly because he has a reputation as a low strikeout guy. But then you went on to say, sometimes it's not that low of a strikeout rate, first of all, but he has an advantage that not a lot of other starting pitchers with low strikeout rates have.
0: Well, he pitches more innings. And so he gets you the volume. And you, you, that's the other thing with, out there that you can bank on that he's going to get those innings. It's an established fact. Um, he's established that he could do it and keep his arm healthy, which is a huge thing these days. Um, I think it's very possible that we have yet to see the best season from Framber Valdez. Um, again, he had to, it looked like he had a little slump this year, uh, but he seems to have righted his ship, and we'll see how he finishes. I'm kind of rooting for the Astros to get knocked out early, so that people don't notice. The last thing I want him to do is to be a big star in the postseason, and then then he's going to go, you know, higher than I want him to go because I really want him next year.
1: He's got 175 innings this year, which puts him, I think, in the top 10 of all starting pitchers. There's a couple of other names on that list. What do you think of a strategy where you just try to get guys who get lots of innings?
0: It's great because you're not going to get the innings unless you're a good pitcher. I mean, it may not be elite, um, but you're still going to be good. Nobody throws the innings if if they're not getting the outs. So I think that's a fine strategy as long as you don't take it too far, you know. I mean, don't, as I say, I don't know any really bad pitchers who are going to who are going to get a lot of innings, especially these days.
1: I looked it up, Valdez is fifth in baseball with those 175 innings. Do you know who the leader is? Would you like to hazard a guess? Uh Garrett Cole. No, Logan Webb in San Francisco and he's got a 3.50 ERA. In, in those innings, which is a huge help to your uh, decimals when you're putting together a fantasy staff. All those innings at a low ERA is just a tremendous benefit.
0: Right. Um, now, there's a little bit of a thing there that I don't know if you would want both Webb and Valdez, because they're both extreme ground ball pitchers, somewhat lower strikeout rates. If I mean, I don't think you're really playing with fire. I think that's a, the wrong way to put it. Uh, but you want to be careful going forward if you have them both that you are going to get high strikeout guys to compensate for uh, for their relatively low rates, which are, you know, as I say, largely compensated for by the volume, but not entirely
1: it sets you up for an interesting mix of starters on your on your rotation in a fantasy sense because you could have a couple of these high volume guys with low relatively low ERA's because of their ground ball tilts and on the other side you could gamble a little bit more on high strikeout guys knowing that their number of innings is probably going to be less or even designing it that their number of innings is going to be less still get you the strikeouts that you might need to buttress what you're getting with the with the high volume guys While not necessarily killing all your decimals,
0: yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a good way to go about doing it, and that's that's going to be my default position going into twenty twenty
1: four. That's interesting. I look at guys like Logan Webb, and they, to my recollection, they were seventh, eighth, ninth round guys this year, not second, third, fourth round guys this year.
0: Right, and and again, you know, if they're if these people are insisting on you know, taking uh, Nathan Ivaldi in the third round. I'm going to take Logan Webb in the eighth.
1: Another guy who seems to fit into that category is Pablo Lopez of Minnesota, who's having a terrific year.
0: Yeah, he is. He's a guy that I kind of like this year. Uh, and I have him on one team, and that's uh, he's been my best pitcher on that team. And he, uh, he's uh he I think he's changed a little bit of his repertoire and I think that's helped him do. But again, I mean, there's no reason why that's not going to continue.
1: Well, innings are likely to get increasingly valuable because so many pitchers are throwing fewer and fewer of them. And in a state of the game section at the end of one of your articles at The Athletic, you noted some striking news, no pun intended, about how many pitchers are actually getting innings.
0: Yeah, at, at that time, there were 325 pitchers who had pitched 20 innings or less this year. I mean, that's an astounding total. I, mean, I, I don't know how long it was when there, were, uh, there weren't 325 pitchers in baseball over the whole year. I mean, there were for decades, that was certainly true. Um, of course, not anymore. But the fact of the matter is, all these basically terrible pitchers I mean, because I, I checked it. Their ERA is 6.51, and their whip is 1.73. I mean, that is atrocious. And these guys are pitching every night, basically. Their na- the names are different, but the pitcher is basically the same, a stiff. And they're taking innings away from guys who are, by definition, better. Um, you wonder how long this can continue. You wonder how long that this blatant, market inefficiency is going to remain unexploited. Somebody, somebody's going to have to, some smart GM is going to do it. The problem is you have to start doing it in the minor leagues. You have to have the authority. You have to have the vision to, first of all, to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to train you guys to pitch more innings. You have to be careful when they're young. Definitely. Um, but still, and especially for relievers, um, there's no reason for these guys to be pitching two thirds of an inning when they could pitch two innings. Um, there's no reason for pitchers. To, I mean, I, the third time around the, you know, the order lineup penalty is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, and it's not. And it's not like the guys who are coming in are any better. I mean, there we have a 6.51 ERA. Your first time through the order is terrible, <laughs> by, by definition. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I, uh, in relation to this, when Ron Chandler first introduced strand rate or left on base percentage, as they call it sometimes, um, the average was like seventy five percent. It's under seventy two percent now. Don't tell me that these things are not related. Um, it seems uh, I'm shocked that it's seventy one point nine. I mean, to me, it seems like it's 30 because every time my pitcher gets taken <laughs> out, the guy gives up a bases loaded double. I mean, amen, just,
1: amen, brother.
0: Oh, I it's just, I, I don't know where I have to, I don't know. You know what I'm saying.
1: Oh, I, I certainly do. And we've talked about this before and I've talked about it with other people on the show. It seems as you said at The Athletic, it seems like what we don't uh, often understand, and that when I say we, I mean fantasy managers, but I also mean people in baseball, that every inning that one of these basically bums pitches is an inning that one of your better pitchers doesn't pitch. And it seems like borderline insane to want to balance your pitching staff in that way. So let's take 20 innings away from Spencer Strider so that we can give them to Joe Shlobotnik.
0: Yeah, and... uh, You could even, if you were arguing, well, we're not, they're not pitching, but they're staying healthier, but they're not staying healthier. They get more than ever. (laughs) Um, So I, there seems to be no, there's no upside to it that I can see. And I, you know, even financially, it's got to cost them too, because these guys are minor leaguers. But once they make the major leagues, don't they get major league money for the rest of the year? You know, it's only Seven hundred fifty thousand, but you multiply it by three hundred and twenty-five. You're talking about real money, you know.
1: I think they only get that while they're actually on the roster. But your point is still valid if they if they've got seven point five percent. You wrote of the total innings, those three hundred twenty-five bad pitchers with the with the six fifty aggregate ERA. That they're being, they're being paid to, to log that 650 money RA on the big league rosters. And it's a scandalous waste of money. So where, where are the owners in this? If, if I was the owner of a team and I saw, Hey, I'm paying Joe Slobotnik 750 grand prorated even, but whatever that is, uh, you know, five, 6,000, uh, $60,000 a game or whatever it works out to be. I can't afford to do that.
0: I don't know. I, I, I they must be cowed. I mean, they don't strike me as being the type of people who can be cowed by their subordinates. I mean, they wouldn't be billionaires if that were true. But I think when it comes to baseball, they just put blinders on and say, you do it. Uh, you know, I mean, they don't, the owners don't seem to have any vision. You know, once in a while, you'll see GMs that have, that have vision. But I, don't, I can't think of one owner that has a vision other than, well, I want to win. Okay.
1: Yeah, for a while, the Boston Red Sox ownership had the had the reputation of being sort of tuned into the the advanced stats and so forth. Partly because a lot of the a a lot of those guys were hedge fund managers and they're used to dealing with advanced metrics in their financial world and probably believe in it to an extent that, say, Artie Moreno may not. I don't know.
0: Well, it certainly worked for them. So I. I- Maybe we should look for them to be the ones who are going to innovate with this, innovate to this old strategy, uh, if I may.
1: And by the way, $5,000 a game, not 50. Uh, it's still $5,000 a game times 325 guys times however many games. It's a, it's a lot of money, and it seems to be right. money that they're throwing down the rat hole.
0: Right. Yeah, to no advantage. With it. they're, and it's hurting them on the field.
1: Before we leave the starting pitchers, uh, Gene, I was wondering about your assessment of this year's, huh, who, where'd he come from award? Kansas City left-hander Cole Reagans looks like uh, he could be a very highly rated pitcher going into next year's drafts.
0: And I think he should be. I mean, he looks real in every sense. We, of course, he have got to stay healthy. Um, you asked me before who was helping me in, uh, in DFS, and I've been milking him like a cow. For the last month or so, and boy, is he! I mean, he just delivers game after game. You look at him; he's got that—he's got that fastball that, uh, that, you know, the high lefty, high volume lefty fastball that comes with movement on it. um, Really hard to hit. I I think he's legit in every sense of the word, as long as he stays healthy. Uh, But I don't think he's going to be any secret next year. I think that—I think that people are all over him basically. I noticed it at DFS that, you know, when I first had him, he he was like 3% owned and now he's over 30% every, in all his starts. So the world is getting hip to him.
1: And of course the, the draft operators, the DFS operators, his first couple of starts, probably very low salaries, but they would be creeping up because they're not just going to let you keep getting a guy for 3000 that's this skilled.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But he's been worth it at the high salaries, too. No there you go. Yep. About
1: Bad team context, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's not a particularly team-dependent pitcher, and it's a good ballpark. Um, so that mitigates it somewhat. And I also think that that team might, is probably going to be better next year. They have some interesting pieces that they've been throwing out there. They're not they're not losing as badly as they were and they're, uh, especially their hitting looks a lot better than it had been. Uh, they were terrible to start of the season. They're not so bad now.
1: No, that's, that's exactly right. I, I think they, they look to me like they have the potential to be a Baltimore Orioles story next year.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I'd go that far because they don't, uh, I don't know if they have the superstar, uh, Pieces that the, that the Orioles have or will have in, in in the next you know next going forward, but they do have the possibilities and and they certainly have the you know the prospects that look like they're going to be solid major leaguers. So yeah, I think there's all, almost no doubt that they're going to be better next year.
1: Yeah, I didn't mean to imply that they're going to, you know, win a hundred games and and challenge for the world series, but they're going to be, I think the point I was making is they're going to be a lot better and it's going to be somewhat surprising to a lot of people because they have this reputation as being, you know, a sad sack sort of operation. And they do have Bobby Witt and every team needs a superstar.
0: Right. Yeah. And also a, a big reason that they've been so terrible is that they have terrible pitching and he's not a terrible pitcher. So. That's one game out of five, right there. They we actually have somebody who's really good, which they haven't had in years. So.
1: Yeah, there you go. Well, Gene, interesting so far. Let's take a quick break. We'll do some news, and uh, then we'll finish our discussion. Sounds like a plan. Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, is a fantasy baseball columnist at the Athletic. He'll be back later to talk about post hype hitters, the twenty twenty four catcher scene, his boons and bane's for twenty twenty four and a couple of cool music acts, including a young female singer who has just the most amazing voice. We'll play a couple of tunes in a Coda segment after the main pod, so check that out. Meanwhile, coming up, we have our player news reports with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, next on BaseballHQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In roster analysis and forecasting, we have the lineup outlook column. Analyst Greg Jewett looks at batting order adjustments being made in Miami. Jason Dominguez settling into a primo batting order slot for the Yankees. And he has some ideas about rookie hitters to stream for next week. In Playing Time Tomorrow Roster Forecasting, Brian Rudd looks at the five teams in the American League Central, including a pending return of red-hot Alex Kiriloff and some possible pitching reinforcements coming to Cleveland. And in the National League West, Dan Marcus looks at third-base situations in Arizona and San Francisco. You know, it's important to know what's happening on Major League rosters, but it's just as important to know what's going to happen. And that's why roster analysis and forecasting are another great resource at BaseballHQ.com.
2: Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show.
3: Happy Friday one last time.
1: Let's start, as we always do, with the American League and some hitters. Uh, J.P. Crawford of Seattle, in 523 plate appearances this year, has 14 home runs, which is like double what he's ever done in his past career. He's got 80 runs, 47 RBIs, a couple of steals, and a 270 batting average. So... If we call him a compiler, a guy who hits leadoff, he could reach a career best and run scored this year. Corbin Young looked at all of this in Facts and Flukes this week, Ray. So the question, I think, is Crawford's power gain legitimate?
3: I think we're pretty dubious of that. Uh, there are some skill gains going on here in other areas. Uh, his plate discipline has always been a stra- strength, but he's cut his chase rate down. Um, he's actually fifth best among qualifi- all qualified hitters in chase rate. He's, wa- he's always been able to draw a walk which is kind of why he hits lead off but his 15 percent walk rate this year is a career high also 97th percentile all that nets out to a 390 obp which is you know exactly what you want in front of julio rodriguez and company um as far as the home, home runs there is some support for it he's hitting more fly balls which are kind of a prerequisite for home runs um you know he's traditionally been more of a ground ball rate in the mid 40s kind of guy, but he's nudged his home run rate up from 30, 31% traditionally up to 36 now, which is better. We, you know, he's not someone who's got the kind of power that we want to see a 45 or 50% fly ball rate. So that's, it seems like a adjustment of a reasonable size. Um, He's also barreling the ball more, which is, of course, more means more hard contact, more expected slug. So that's good. Um, the trade-off for that seems to be that he's making a little less contact, so he's hitting the ball in the air more, but he's hitting the ball at all a little less often. So we traditionally have called that selling out for power. Which, to be fair, these are not such extremes, extreme changes going on here. That selling out might be overstating it, but he is trading off contact for loft. Probably is the best way to put it, and that's leading to a few more home runs.
1: I noticed that. Uh... The facts and flukes coverage mentioned that Crawford had gone to driveline in the off season, and I guess he was getting them to try to retool his swing a little bit to generate a little more power. And you mentioned that his barrel rate is up to 5%, which is two points higher than his career average up till this year, but that's still not a great barrel rate, let's be honest.
3: Yeah, exactly. No one's ever going to mistake him for uh, somebody who's hit, hitting lasers over the left center field wall with uh, with regularity. Um, but as far as the home, home runs, you know, these 12% home run per fly for the season, which is up from what we've seen from him in the past. We've, we talked about why some of that might be sustainable, but it, that, that number of that home run per fly is also 28% over the last 30 days. I am comfortable saying that J.P. Crawford will never have a 28% home run per fly for any reasonable sample size of time. Despite the driveline work, I don't think we're seeing a real new level here. Obviously, compiler is still his main skill set, and if he gets... 650 plate appearances a year as he traditionally does, then he's going to fill the statute a little bit, but I don't think this is a budding 18 to 20 home run skill set. I wouldn't be at all surprised if our 2024 projection is more in the 10 to 12 range.
1: Which still isn't bad. I wonder if his purpose for going to drive line wasn't so much hit home runs was just to increase his, um, launch angle a little bit from a predominantly ground ball kind of situation to get more line drives and maybe more base hits. And certainly his batting average is up a little bit this year as well. But for a guy at the top of the order, Ray, as we look into 2024, we simply cannot count on J.P. Crawford to provide any stolen bases, really.
3: No, we're sitting here, you know, tamping down the power expectations, but you really want to tamp down the speed expectations even more. Uh, you know his career high in stolen bases is six, and if you look at the you know Statcast stat metrics behind that, you know there's good reason for that. It's not just that you know he chooses not to show off blazing speed or anything like that. He's uh, you know his sprint speed is 27th percentile, 22 total stolen bases for his career, which is you know a neighborhood of 10 or 11 per 650 plate appearances. Uh, his career go rate is only three percent, so. He's not particularly aggressive slash doesn't get a green light. So if you net all of this together, looking ahead, you know, it's a smattering of stolen bases. It might be 10, 12 home runs going forward with a lot of runs if he's batting lead off and a decent number of RBIs. Uh, so, you know, his current value this season with the, the additional power output is, you know, he's tracking toward about a $17 season. Um, I would probably pump the brakes on that and knock him down to the low teens as a, a, as a, um, you know, stake in the ground for 2024.
1: In the Batting Buyer's Guide, analyst Stephen Nickrand likes to look at monthly base performance values, uh, BPVs, we call them a compendium of core hitting skill metrics. A couple of catchers made Stephen's list, starting with Toronto catcher Alejandro Kirk. Yeah,
3: this was very handy for me because I uh, hosted a chat on Monday where somebody asked about Alejandro Kirk's going forward outlook, and I said I'm going to need to take a look at exactly what went wrong, uh, you know, when we get into the off season. And then the very next day, Stephen had a column that told me exactly what went wrong this year. So thanks, Stephen. I really appreciated that. Um, but Stephen's take here was interesting and a little surprising in that in that I didn't catch what Steven noted um, in my 30 seconds of research during the chat. Um, We know Kirk, of course, is a high contact hitter. That's sort of his core skill. Um, Not just high contact, but weak contact. He's got a 93% contact rate this year, so he only strikes out 7% of the time. You know, swings and misses, of course, correlate with that. His whiff rate's in the 98th percentile. Um, And he hits the ball reasonably hard as well. What he doesn't do is hit the ball in the air. That's kind of been his career-long bugaboo in that his barrel rate, his launch angles are all bad for the amount of contact he makes and kind of ruins the benefit of all that contact because if you've seen Alejandro Kirk, he's not going to be beating out a lot of ground balls to shortstop, right? So that's kind of been the bugaboo in his skill set, but Stephen points out in his analysis this week that the launch angle has gotten better this month. Um, it's 15% for the month, um, and you can you, you can't see, you can see that that's a lot better because for the full season, his launch angle is only 7%. So he's really nudged it up in the last month. And we'll have to wait and see if that's sustainable. But with Danny Jansen out, we're going to get a decent look at Kirk down the stretch. So we're going to get a decent two-month sample across August and September here to see if he's made an adjustment that is sustainable and – that would be pretty interesting on a go forward basis because like we said, the the launch angle has been sort of the missing link in his skill set here.
1: I don't know if you've seen online or in presentations or what have you, that little gimmick where they show the uh, sliders at Baseball Savant over a couple of years and how they move around. And I don't know how to do that, but if you just do it manually, what you see is uh, Kirk's Uh, barrel rate last year was like 40th percentile and this year it's 18th and that has a lot to do with launch angle and it just seems that for some reason he's just beating the ball into the ground like nobody's business and, and not even like his own business really and I wonder if that's the kind of thing that we presume is correctable and if so do we give him a mulligan for this year, assuming he can correct it in the off season or before if the Jays are lucky and he can turn into kind of a, a, a catcher that we still remain interested in for fantasy purposes in 2024.
3: I think that's possible. I always favor sort of conceptually or theoretically. I love guys like this who have some kind of elite skill, right? In Kirk's case, it's the skill of putting the bat on the ball and if you've got that as a foundational skill, it seems like the other adjustments that we're talking about here should be more easily made by somebody who's got like an elite tent pole in their skill set like that. For instance, just completely theoretically with Kirk, and I'm not his, believe it or not, I'm not his hitting coach, but if he could put the bat on the ball like literally all the time as he, as he has shown, right, the adjustment to not hit ground ball should be to just not swing at the pitches that he hits on the ground, right? Because it's not like you have to worry in most cases, you know, two strikes is one thing, but it's not like you have to worry in most cases about missing the only pitch you're going to be able to put the bat on the ball and, you know, taking the ground ball because it it might be the best pitch you're going to get the hit. Kirk puts the bat on everything. So don't put the bat on the ball that you're going to hit the ground ball in shortstop. Wait for the next pitch. Seems like, a conceivable adjustment that can be made. So I'd rather you know place a bet on an adjustment from somebody who's starting with, you know, here's something he does literally better than almost everybody else in baseball and figure out how to leverage that skill.
1: And having said all that, I just checked on baseball savant and, uh, it turns out that Kirk's ground ball percentage last year was 49.5 and this year it's 50 or something like that. So really it's the other way around. There's been no difference in the ground balls this year or the line drives is his batting batted ball profile seems to be exactly the same. It's just, uh, for some reason, maybe they're positioning him better. Maybe he's making, he, he is making a lot less hard contact. So as you said, he's not going to get many leg hits, you know, for him, a leg hit is hitting it off the pitcher's leg, I think. But, uh, he's going to have to hit the ball hard to get it through the infield far enough so that he can get a single out of it. And perhaps it's the hardness of contact rather than the launch angle of, of it. That's, that's uh, the problem here.
3: Obviously he has to, you know, the hard contact is still a pretty low percentage of all the contact he's got to enter. You know, he has got that Venn diagram with balls that he hits hard and balls that he hits on the ground. And it's the one, you know, it's the ones in the middle that you um, that we're, that we're talking about. Um, But it's so, yeah, I, there, there's a lot of moving parts here. And I go back to my sort of initial comment at the top. I'm I'll be curious to take a look at, you know, to, to pull this apart in more, more detail with um within the off season sort of when we get this entire August and September sample size baked and see if we can figure out if something is different here.
1: The other catcher that Steven Nickran mentioned is Oakland catcher Shea Langoliers came up with a kind of a hullabaloo. A lot of people were interested in him. He was a pretty decent prospect and he's pretty much panned out. What was Steven's analysis on Langoliers?
3: Yeah, overall, it's been kind of a mixed bag with Langoliers this year that the power is encouraging 16 home runs and 417 plate appearances. That's a, you know, that's a 25 home run pace over 650 plate appearances. We don't expect catchers to necessarily reach that per 650 number because they get rest and that sort of thing. Uh, the downside with Wangoliers with, with the power though, is that it's been a batting average strain. He's only hitting 205 on the year. Um, but what Steven noted under the hood here is that Wangoliers contact rates are actually up uh, 74% in August. This is his highest monthly mark of the season. And those come with, th- that, more, that additional contact has come with excellent Batted ball indicators is his exit velocity is 94 miles an hour. His launch angle is a healthy 18%. It's got a 14% barrel rate, which is great. It's only a month, but that's a Bryce Harper, Ronald Lacuna level barrel rate. And, you know, think about all of this too in the context of this is a catcher in August. You know, most catchers tend to wear down at this time of year, and Wang is actually getting his bat going. So right. I think that's a pretty promising uh, sign for. The next for next year, I much like we were saying about Kirk. I'd love to see whether this is a one-month blip or whether this carries over into September. Uh, but a, a promising August makes makes us start to suspect that maybe there's a little, little more with Langelier's in terms of 2024 optimism than we will derive from his full season 2023 stat line.
1: Could also be one of those grains uh, that we want to look at for Langoliers and for Kirk in spring training next year, because that's one of the things that we can see. Uh, The pitching's not as good, we know that. But if all of a sudden, uh, you know, the the hard hit rate for Kirk goes up and the strikeouts come down for Langoliers and batting average seems to go up, I, I think that'll be an interesting data point next year in spring training to watch for. Let's go over to the American league pitchers. Uh, One of the favorite upfront metrics that our relief pitching columnist, Doug Dennis loves to examine is strikeout minus walk rate. There's a lot of experts in our business, Ray who think strikeout minus walk rate is really the core thing you need to look at for pitchers. There's all kinds of other metrics we know, but that's where a lot of them start. Uh, You know, Sarah starts there I know and uh, others, and this week Doug Dennis did a kind of a macro micro study of relievers looking at their strikeout minus walk rates for the full season and just for August and a name that popped out in this analysis and also in facts and flukes by the way was Tampa reliever Jason Adam
3: always a fascinating skill set with Adam uh, every time i look at his player link page i'm <laughs> i'm kind of dazzled by it uh, you know he was he popped in Doug's analysis here because He's been kind of just b- below the elite level in K minus BB rate, you know, 20, 25% for the full season, but actually spiked that to uh, 40% in August, which is just eye-popping, you know, really just gets your attention. Uh, and as a result, he's he's been growing his role in that bullpen, of course. Uh, you know, it's basically him and Robert Stevenson setting up Peter Fairbanks these days. And for a bullpen, it's been a revolving door in Tampa Uh, All year, really, Adam's emergence has been one of the things that has stabilized it. Um, Adam, of course, you'll recall, was really good last year as well. Uh, Really good in terms of a 156 ERA and a .076 whip, which is, you know, just terrific numbers. And even picked up eight saves, you know, in that revolving door Tampa bullpen. Uh, But the skill set is, you know, it's really an interesting one. The strikeout rates, as we said, are, you know, borderline really good, but off the charts lately. uh, The the downside of that is his walk rate is always dangerous, but if he's going to spike the strikeout rate to the levels that now, we will more than live with the walk rate. Um, And it seems like there's some, as you might expect, when the strikeout rate spikes like that, there are some pitch mix changes behind that. Um, He's kind of changed the... the shape of his slider slash sweeper took a little velocity off of it, but it's got more movement, more drop in particular, um, and it generates a lot of weak contact. So the con- the combo of strikeouts and weak contact is great, and the walks are still a little bit concerning, but if he's going to strike out 40% of the batters, like I said, we'll, we'll overlook the occasional walk.
1: Yes, indeed we will. And as you said, he's getting the role in the Tampa bullpen. I think they finally settled on Pete Fairbanks for as long as he stays healthy, I suppose. But Adam and Stevenson, who also got mentioned in, in Doug Dennis's column as a guy to be mindful of, doing a pretty good job getting that bullpen sorted out from uh, what was a bit of a mishmash earlier. So speaking of Stevenson, Adam's injured right now. So is the door opening for Stevenson a little wider?
3: Yeah, it is, and Doug is also enthusiastic about Stevenson's skill set. Uh, his is Stevenson's expected ERA this year is a buck seventy-two, uh, which is really good. He's also got a you know eye-popping strikeout rate, forty-seven percent in August. So the Stevenson Adam duo, where they were both healthy, were just mowing down batters in front of Fairbanks. Um, the downside with Stevenson is gopheritis, he gave up uh, 1.7 home runs per nine in August, so as where Adam's problem was the walks, Stevenson's problem is the home run, which again, we don't want to scoff at either one of those issues, uh, but with this massive step forward in Stevenson's strikeout rate, you know, the, the occasional solo home run, if it's a solo home run, is not the most damaging thing in the world, and the strikeout rate alone really puts him in the, you know, really have to pay attention kind of category.
1: Especially when the 47% strikeout rate in August comes with a 3% walk rate, a 44% strikeout minus walk is otherworldly. I I can't even think of the last time I saw a pitcher with a near 50% strikeout minus walk rate. That's really something. And Stevenson's a free agent this year, so he could really enhance his value by going somewhere where they're looking for higher leverage relievers.
3: Yeah. I think one thing we know about the Rays is they're not going to pay through the nose for relievers, they're just going to go get another one off the scrap heap. So it does stand the reason that Stevenson, if he cashes in, it's going to be somewhere else.
1: In Oakland, the A's activated right handed starter Mason Miller from the 60 day IL. Of course, he was a top prospect, one of the first pitchers to get the call up this year and caused quite a stir, but then he got hurt. Uh, Jake Crumpler for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what should we expect from Miller for the rest of the season?
3: Yeah, you don't want to just characterize this as uh, he's back just to show he's healthy going into the offseason, but that's kind of, in, in terms of expectations, that's probably the best way to think of it. Uh, you, the, to, re, to refresh the memory, like you said, he got hurt shortly after his uh, his own little fabapalooza weekend in April, and even though they characterized that as a mild sprain of the ulnar collateral ligament, I mean, it's been four months since we've seen him, and you would think that the A's are going to be cautious from here so we gave him a spattering of playing time he's going to work out of the bullpen uh probably be you know in a a multi-inning role but still limited to probably about 50 pitches per outing uh the the athletics also called up Devin sweet and easton lucas to sort of fill out their september bullpen and option sam long who uh, we've seen a bunch of this year and zach neal and also dfa spencer patton so a revolving door as it's been kind of all year in the Back of the Oakland pitching staff, uh, of these guys, Miller will be interesting to watch because this stuff is really interesting. You know, throws near 100, not always with an idea of where it's going. So we'll have to see. You know, about the only thing he can do this this month is demonstrate that the elbow is fine and let us evaluate him accordingly going into the offseason.
1: And to make that evaluation, we'll have to watch and see what his pitch mix looks like because usually elbow trouble they try to get away from the breaking pitches and sliders and stuff like that. So if he continues to throw those with uh, any amount of volume, then that would be a kind of reassuring. I also like the idea that he's going to be pitching in that sort of swingman long relief role. Uh, Gene McCaffrey and I have talked about this Back in the day, Nolan Ryan was a swingman when he was a young pitcher, and it seems to be a really good way to get a guy's feet wet in the major leagues instead of, as seems to be the case more often now with starters, that they just throw him out there to be a starter right away. And he's got to bear down really tough and, and have all of those things working against him. I know the A's didn't have a lot of choice as far as who they were going to start, but I think it might be good for Mason Miller that he gets this experience as a, as a setup man, swing man, guy who pitches three innings here and a couple innings there.
3: Yeah, you're right. Even to go to a more, Slightly more contemporary example, shall we say. I mean, I remember Johan Santana spending the first couple of years of his career in that role with with the Twins where he was working as a sort of multi-inning relief guy to manage both his innings and his usage, but also to get some value out of him for the organization at the big league level rather than have him wasting those bullets, if you will, in the minors. So it's funny that... That has gone by the wayside to the degree that it has, and you you do wonder if it um, if handling Miller this way, even in a you know September call up kind of situation, changes the uh, you know pr- pr- brings that back into vogue a little bit, and we start to see some guys get handled that way because I you know it was way more common back in the day, but I think. It also worked in a lot of cases. So I think, I think it has some merit, but it's just not the way that, you know, it's not consistent with the way pitching staffs are managed these days.
1: But perhaps it should be. I agree. And, and Gene again, also agrees. He pointed out that there's a lot of pitchers getting a lot of innings who are ringing up like seven ERAs. And it seems to make a lot more sense to bring up these young pitchers. And as we said, just throw them out there in low leverage situations, let them get their feet wet, learn how to get guys out, learn how to pitch rather than just throw all of those things without the pressure of having to be the first guy out there standing there with the spotlight on you.
3: Yeah, 100%. And it also teaches efficiency, right? Especially with a guy like Miller, whose concern is, uh, you know, the command and throwing strikes. If he goes out there and knows he's only got 50 pitches, you know, If he's not careful, those 50 pitches could go one and a third innings, but if he wants to get three innings of work in there, you know, better pay more attention to throwing strikes and throwing quality strikes and trying to get guys out that way. It can be a, uh, you know, sometimes the uh, the pitch count could be a motivator too.
1: Over to the National League we go and uh, we'll go to the hitters. We've had a, another wave of prospects called up in the last week or so, and one of them who wasn't called up perhaps a little bit surprising Milwaukee outfielder, Jackson Churio, uh, Dan Marcus covers the national league central for playing time tomorrow, the roster forecasting analysis at baseballhq.com. So the question is, do we think Churio is coming in September? And if not, why not?
3: Yeah, there's been a clamoring from uh, the Milwaukee faithful to add Churio to the Brewers playoff push here, but it seems like it's not going to happen according to Dan Uh, and Dan's biggest reason for that is that the brewers have already reinforced this outfield quite a bit this year uh they've in particular with the prospects they've already called up sal frelick and joey weimer and those guys have led to a logjam on the outfield depth chart so there may not be a place to fit cheerio into the picture for the balance of the season frelick has been better at the plate, not great, but a 763 OPS. Um, Weimer has been more of a defensive specialist, uh, which kept him in the lineup for a long time, but now his hitting has been so bad, a 208 batting average, is 655 OPS, that he's been kind of shuffled to a backup slash defensive replacement role. That might be where he starts 20, 2024 as well. But with Yelich, Frelick, Ty Taylor... And then Weimer, Brian Anderson, and Owen Miller are all still on the roster. You know, Anderson and Miller are kind of infield-outfield hybrids, but there's a lot, there's a logjam here. Looking forward to next year, Weimer, Frelick, you know, Weimer probably in a reserve role, Frelick in center, and Yelich left, leaves a spot for Churios. So that's probably where we'll see him next year. But for this month, it seems like if it was gonna happen, it would have happened already.
1: And one thing uh, Ty Taylor, Weimer, Anderson, and Miller all have in common, OPS is under 700. So, uh, and and that's for a full season. So there should be room next season for Trujillo. You're right. He's having a really good minor league season. His twy and walks are in line with what you might expect. And Dan Marcus also commented in his playing time tomorrow piece on the incentives that Milwaukee may be able to take advantage of when they make their Trujillo decision.
3: Yeah, it, and that relates to the sort of, I don't want to call it a stampede, but you know, more than a trickle of prospect call-ups that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, right? Uh, the, the new rules in the uh, collective bargaining agreement that came out of the 2022 lockout encourage teams to get their top prospects to the big leagues by giving them the opportunity to be awarded additional draft picks uh if a player is in the top 100 prospects on a couple of reputable sources and is rookie eligible um and makes the opening day roster and then makes then wins the rookie of the year award the team gets draft pick bonus um churio is well on track to be eligible for those incentives next year which means that there's an incentive for the brewers to have him on the opening day roster. And the reason we've seen so many other prospects called up in the last couple of weeks and why it could have made sense for Churio this year is because these prospects all can kind of get their September cup of coffee, but retain that rookie of the year eligibility for next year and kind of go through a little bit of their big league acclimation before next April. But given the lock jam and the other considerations with the Brewers trying to make the playoffs, they seem to have decided that they're going to just... Leave Churio down for this year, and we'll see what happens um, if they decide to make him eligible for op- that that opening day sort of windfall draft pick next year. But either way, whether or not they do it, you got you have to assume we're going to see Churio next year, and he is a uh, he is certainly a stash him if you can uh, type of prospect, a, a ton of power and speed. The, the uh, play patients and the contact rates look like they're there. We never know if there's going to be a smooth transition to the majors, but he seems like even though he's just 19 this year, that he's got all the makings of someone who's going to be an impact major leaguer and quickly.
1: He's only in double A, but of course we've seen more than a few prospects making the jump from double A rather than passing through triple A. I have one question about the eligibility of rookies, and that is, it used to be that Uh, players who were called up for September, prospects being called up for September, those days in September didn't count towards their rookie eligibility, their service time and so forth. But I understand that now those days do count and that seems to be a kind of a disincentive for the teams to want to add a player this late into September because they're giving away rookie eligibility days for relatively limited benefit. And I'm not sure that that analysis is right, but have you heard anything like that?
3: I'm not I'm not 100% clear on it either. I think you're right that the September call-up days don't necessarily contribute to your, losing your rookie eligibility, because there are a couple of different ways you can lose your rookie eligibility. There, it's by, it's by days on the roster, but it can also be by playing time, and I think if they could call, get called up for the month of September, they're not in danger of losing the eligibility by days. But if the cutoff is, I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's something like 130 at bats or something like that. So if you got called up in mid August and played every day, you might get in danger of that 130 at bat or 30 innings or whatever the equivalent number is for pitchers. So I don't think it's a day's calculation as much as it is a playing time calculation for those guys who come up and, and get, you know, everyday opportunities, but, you know, spending September in The kind of role we were talking about for Jackson Churio, where he wouldn't have presumably been playing every day, should not have had any impact at all. But the Brewers have decided not to do it for other reasons, apparently.
1: One of the more interesting stories we've had this year is the rise of San Francisco catcher Patrick Bailey. So that kind of came out of nowhere, uh, zipped past Joey Bart, like nobody's business and went past Blake Sable and established himself as not only San Francisco's main catcher, but as a pretty darn good catcher, both for baseball purposes and fantasy purposes. Unfortunately, he had some kind of collision at the plate. He's on the seven day concussion IL, uh, Jay Crumpler covering the story for playing time today. What's the latest?
3: Yeah, you hit the highlights. Collision at the plate has a concussion, so that that gets him on that sort of nebulous seven-day concussion IL. Could be seven days, could be the rest of the season. I, don't, I haven't seen much in the way of guidance about that, and of course, you know, as we know, they're you know the the reason there may not be guidance is because the Giants probably don't know. Coming off of that IL requires, you know, adhering to a protocol and hearing and clearing several milestones along the way. So it's a multi-step process that he's just going just going to work through as long as it takes. Like you said, yeah, Bailey zipped past Joey Barton in the depth chart this year, but now it's Bart who's back uh, filling in for for Bailey uh, on the big league roster, uh, and it's a, kind of amazing how far Bart's star has fallen he hasn't been with the big league club since may when the kind of that sable and bailey job share made him the third catcher and got him got bart boosted off the roster Uh, but even back down in the minors um in triple a this year he only had 241 with six home runs and 85 wrc plus which is below average so you know he's not coming back in giving us any expectation that he's going to you know, restake his claim to this job. It's more like he's just going to fill in the short side of a catching platoon with Sable until and unless Bailey makes his way back. So Sable becomes the primary catcher. Uh, the Giants also, in the course of these roster machinations, um, set back down Wade Meckler, who was a sort of interesting call up in the outfield a couple of weeks ago only to come up. You know, he's one of those guys who came up and thought he might be a spark in the lineup, but instead he has struck out at a 39% rate in the big league. So the Giants will pivot back to Luis Matos in their outfield mix. And that is, of course, a revolving door where Mike Yastrzemski and Austin Slater will probably handle center field. And guys like Matos and Jock Peterson and the currently injured Michael Conforto will also get into that That mix. So, playing time, as always, fractured in a lot of different directions in San Francisco.
1: Here, you said you're not a football guy, and you mentioned Bart Starr. (laughs) (laughs) See what I did there? In the National League Facts and Flukes this week, one of the hitters that analyst Greg Pyron looked at was Washington first baseman outfielder Joey Manessis. I had a lot of Manessis on fantasy rosters this season, and for a while, to call his performance meh would have been overstating the case, and I remember there was a Facts and Flukes about him back at the 160 plate appearance mark when he was hitting 291 just two homers. That power seems to have returned in the second half, nine homers in 229 plate appearances. It's about a 25 homer pace. What does Greg Pyron see in Manessas these days?
3: Yeah, this is an interesting one. I was glad you flagged this because it's a good case where the conclusions from the fact and fluke analysis are somewhat clear, unclear or at least open to different interpretation, right? Um, Greg harkens back to that second half cup of coffee last year where he was really interesting you know with a half season 240 plate appearances he socked 13 home runs that's a 35 year 35 home run full year pace we didn't expect that to continue because it was boosted by a home run per fly of 25 percent, that was probably unsustainable and sure enough the regression came this year but it came hard in the first half especially when he only hit two home runs Despite a 284 batting average, that was pretty good, but the power just completely lacked. That's gotten better in the second half, but the contact quality is still not great. And you know to the point of being kind of troubling for somebody who's supposed to have this kind of power profile, 5% barrel rate is down from last year's 10%, 42% hard hit rate is, to use your word, meh. And down from last year, ground ball rate is up, which of course, as I always like to say, ground balls are, you know, never going to go for home runs. So seeing that rise is never good. Now he has corrected some of that stuff in the second half, but again, the barrel rate's not there. The hard contact is a little bit better, but not necessarily on balls in the air. So even though his second half of this year 266 and nine homers so far in 239 plate appearances looks a lot like the second half from last year that got us interested in him. We can't just give him a pass on the two home run first half. And, you know, one of the skills in saying that someone is a 20 home run guy over a full season is that he's got to show us he can actually sustain that over a full season. And we've got two half seasons out of three from Meneses saying he can do that. But that's not the same as saying he's done it for an actual whole season, right?
1: Yeah, that, I think that's a really good analysis. And something that uh, popped into uh, Greg Pyron's coverage is that Manessas is 30 years old and he was never a prospect. And I wonder when you're looking at this as a guy who's projecting these players a lot of the times, what does their prospect pedigree status, how does that play into your assessment of what to expect how much leeway does a guy who was never a prospect get over a guy who was, you know, the Alex Rodriguez path to stardom, you know, came up, struggled, came back up and and killed because everybody knew he was great. How do you look at a Joey Manessis who comes up at 29, does okay, kind of inconsistent?
3: Yeah, the, the long-term conventional wisdom on these sort of Bull Durham kind of prospects is that, the later they peak, like the shorter the peak is going to be and the earlier they're going to fall off, right? Um, And I think you're suggesting something a little bit different, which is that we're, you know, even when they make an initial impact later on, like Vanessa's did last year, that maybe we'd be a little more skeptical of it. I think that's true, and that's probably my sort of default or even instinctive stance coming into coming into looking at somebody like this, I think you have to get away from that a little bit just because of the tools the players have these days. And and you know, we were talking about Driveline uh, 15 minutes ago or so, but the idea that players can more easily use the tools and techniques and information available to them to reinvent themselves, I think you always have to be somewhat respectful of a guy who maybe it just took him a long time to really find the mix or figure out what kind of hitter he was going to be or how to use what skill set he had for making himself the most productive hitter he could. So, you know, I I try to remain open to these kind of things, but, you know, I'll confess that in the first half when it looked like Vanessa's was flaming out, I was like, oh, well, I guess last year was just a flash in the pan. And now in the second half, he's sort of saying, oh, well, maybe not quite so much, but I I think overall it's... uh, You know, the inconsistency here is going to make it really hard to get too excited about 2024.
1: Especially since uh, the team is going to have options, a good young team, and they have some decent prospects coming up. Uh, In Miami, the Marlins placed their pitcher Sandy Alcantara on the IL. The dreaded right forearm strain recalled Edward Cabrera from the Miners. Phil Hertz on the story for playing time today. What's the upshot here for these two pitchers?
3: Yeah, Edward Cabrera's back, and that's kind of interesting. But the headline has to be Alcantara's elbow here. Uh, The flexor tendon strain or the the right forearm strain is just really ominous. That, of course, uh, is often the precursor to much worse news. Uh, This season, even when he was healthy before this, has been uh, a big step down from last year's otherworldly Cy Young campaign. But still a 401 expected ERA. His 99 BPV was actually good. I think he outpitched his skills last year in the Cy Young season, and maybe he was paying the Piper for that a little bit. Uh, so, but now with, the, with this forearm strain, it certainly seems likely that we're not going to see him for the rest of September. So we've allocated his lost things to the just called up Cabrera and Devin Smeltzer, who's been kind of the, in case of emergency, break glass option for the Marlins all season long, which it's never good if you see him out there, I think is kind of the bottom line. Uh, Cabrera, his first outing back as a bulk reliever on Wednesday, was very good with four shutout innings, uh, eight strikeouts in that time. Uh, So if he's going to step into the rotation or even work in some kind of multi-inning bulk role like that, he could be pretty interesting over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Spelzer is a remains an a void regardless of his run.
1: We talked last week about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, looking at some top 23 rookies and how they fared. He posted part two of his review, mostly pitchers, and one of them was Los Angeles right-handed starter, Bobby Miller. What did Ryan say about Bobby Miller?
3: Just another Dodger pitcher who comes up and hits the ground running, right? Um, LA was pretty aggressive in turning to him after churning through some lesser heralded options in their Rotation earlier this season. Um, and he's rewarded Billers rewarded the Dodgers' faith in him. Uh, you know, for all the churn in the Dodgers rotation this year, he's actually been a relative constant. Seven wins, a 370 ERA, 117 whip over 14 starts. Even better since the all-star break. He's been 259 ERA, whip just over one, four to one strike out the walk ratio, 21% K minus BB. Uh, those were all really good numbers. Ryan was um it, Surprised me a little bit at first until I read the reasoning behind it, but he was a little uh, tepid in looking at Miller's go-forward outlook based on these numbers. Um, but he made some interesting points in support of that position. You know, Miller's got great stuff. He's got the 99-mile-an-hour fastball, but with despite that, he doesn't miss a ton of bats. His 11% swing strike rate is pretty average for this day and age. And less than you would expect for a 99 mile an hour fastball, um, and that's why his strikeout rate is 22, percent which is you know okay but not great. Um, he's very playable, but maybe it's not the um, maybe maybe it's not the budding star that um, th- th- that you might associate with a top Dodger prospect who comes up and sort of settles right into the rotation. It actually reminds me the whole situation reminds me a little bit of Miller's teammate. Uh, Dustin May, who sort of, before he got hurt and missed all of this year, uh, sort of had the same knock on him that the stuff was, you know, to, to, to use the, kid, the, the kid's description, like Instagram worthy, right? He had all these gifs of, uh, you know, really nasty pitches and blowing people away with fastballs up at 99 and then these ridiculous breaking balls that you know just made everyone salivate when you saw them on twitter or whatever but the overall body of work you know is more than just you know a couple of uh really pretty pitches on twitter and the body of work just kind of was not measuring up to the the sizzle of the uh of the individual individual pitches just yet and um, as I was reading this analysis, analysis from Ryan, I was thinking that Miller might be somewhat in the same boat right now.
1: Something Ryan said that I thought was really right on the mark is whenever we talk about players in in the context of fantasy value, you always have to consider what the cost is going to be. And the point he made was his market value is probably, I think he said a little too rosy given the fast start, the team context, and the divide between the skills and stats. In other words, when we go into 2024, a lot of people are going to look at Bobby Miller, how he performed this year. Uh, decent ERA, decent number of strikeouts, but the metrics aren't all that great. But we're willing to give him a big benefit of the doubt because, hey, it's the Dodgers, lots of wins, you know, good bullpen, won't blow a lot of, of leads and that kind of thing. And I suspect that Ryan's point is that A guy like Miller can easily be overvalued by a round or two, and that makes him, while a useful pitcher to have on your fantasy roster, probably a fantasy pitcher who's going to cost you too much to roster.
3: Right. You're better off looking for the guy who's undervalued by a couple of rounds as opposed to overvalued by a couple of rounds. And I think Ryan is correct in projecting that uh, Miller is probably going to be a little bit overvalued.
1: Ryan also checked in on Arizona right-hander, Brandon Fott, another guy who uh, was called up amid much ballyhoo and got sent down and then called back up with scarcely a whisper. So what's Ryan's analysis on Brandon Fott?
3: Yeah, there was some, if you remember, there was some speculation that Fott was going to be in the rotation to start the season and that didn't happen and frustrated some fantasy owners. But then when he did get called up, uh, in the first half, he was he got rocked around pretty good. Seventeen earned runs and four starts before getting sent back down. So maybe the D-backs were right to pump the brakes on him to start the year. But after he got sent down, uh, he came back up after the All-Star break because the D-backs rotation, especially at the back end, was just in a shambles with uh, uh, you know Zach Davies and a couple other guys just getting racked every fifth day. So they you know Fat meds, made some progress and they gave him a second look. It still hasn't been great, 441 ERA, 124 whip. But the 23% strikeout rate, the 7% walk rate, it's all okay. Certainly better than the first half look we got at him. Um, But he is seemingly adjusting on the fly. It's been some recent improvement, uh, uptick in strikeouts, throwing more sweepers, and it seems like he's remodeled the sweeper a little bit. That pitch is missing a lot of bats. So there's an adjustment period going on here, but this might—you know—this is one good example of someone who, you know, is learning on the fly and might come cheaper than Bobby Miller next year. But maybe with um, maybe it's the right time to jump on him next year as he sort of emerges from this year-long learning curve/slash odyssey he's been through. He might be somebody who's set to take another level next year.
1: There's always next year. The great, the great thing about baseball, the great thing about fantasy baseball, there's always next year. We can start thinking about it. I noticed that, uh, I'm sure you saw this, that somebody, I think it was Rob Pietro, put together an, an actual draft. They're going to play it out. And they drafted like two weeks ago, started drafting their teams for 2024. And of course it was a brilliant move by Rob because everybody's got to talk about something and here they got something to talk about. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I was on, uh, I was on Sleeper in the Bust with uh, Justin Mason and Paul Sporer the other day, and we talked about that draft. And it was great for me because I am in no way prepared to talk to, to, to actually do a draft like that. But I was prepared to talk about it. I, I like everybody else who has looked at it or podcasted about it, had opinions about what were good and bad picks, and it made for it made for a fun conversation. And that's just one draft board. We'll have more you know, soon. And of course we do drafting in, uh, first pitch Arizona coming up in a couple of months. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to gloss over the people who are still tr- grinding for every point in every standing position in their leagues this month. That's, that's important. And we want to support that. But I also, uh, you know, what's the appetite for turning the page and getting back into off season, build your team draft mode. And that's fun too.
1: It is fun for a lot of people it's maybe the most fun of it is building up to draft and then having your draft and getting all excited and seeing where you where you did well uh, the whole process is just fun and and I can't wait for it to start and apparently it's starting sooner than ever it used to start what like m- mid January <laughs> yeah. now you're still playing 2023 and already people are into 2024 okay ray thanks very much uh, thanks for all of your help all year and uh, of course we're not going to have any more baseball HQ radio pods for the rest of September. But I will talk with you and Todd Zola, uh, in early October when we do our annual end of season round table.
3: That one is always a highlight for me. It's a good, it's a good, uh, rip, ripped a bandaid and officially transitioned into off season mode. I will look forward to talking to you guys then.
1: And we'll have a live podcast at first pitch Arizona as usual. Absolutely. There you go. All right, Ray, thanks very much.
3: Thank you, man. Thanks for all the, uh, great hosting all season.
1: Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey. But first, let me highlight some more great resources at the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's performance analysis, facts and flukes columns every day this week, including Jose Urquidy, Razel Iglesias, Kyle Schwarber, and Chris Sale, among many others. And in a first impressions column, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at five young players, including Royce Lewis, Ryan Walker, and Christian Encarnacion Strand. And in this week's Buyer's Guide Skills Analysis, August reviews include analyst Stephen Nickrand with base performance value leaders for hitters and starting pitchers, while analyst Doug Dennis looks at the top strikeout minus walk relievers for the month. The Performance Analysis and Buyer's Guide Skills Analysis, two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com.
2: Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs)
1: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to part two. Nice to be here, Patrick, as ever. You had an article recently at theathletic.com talking about post-hype hitters enjoying surges, which you say seems sustainable, and we're starting with Isaac Paredes of Tampa who's swinging more and missing more this year, but not striking out more. So what is Paredes doing to deserve to be thought of as more than just another post-hype surger?
0: Well, I think it's just a question of his really insanely low BABIP. It was going into the year was, his BABIP was 217 for his career. And I don't think I've ever seen a lower total than that. I mean, not that it's spectacularly high this year, it's still only 280, but you know, he can hit 257 with a 280 bat, and he's got the power. Nobody ever doubted it. And then on top of that, it looks like he's going to play more, and I mean, it's always hard to tell with the Rays, because they like to, you know, you know that they like to have their guys in and out of the lineup, but that said, you know, how different are they from anybody else as long as he stays healthy? And, the you know, there's a slight edge to that, too, is that if you don't start the game, a lot of times they come into the game, especially in a pinch hitting situation. So, it's it's not quite as bad as it seems, and and so I think he can pretty much be counted on to be a, a statistical regular anyway.
1: Another guy you mentioned in this same vein was Spencer Torkelson of the Tigers. What's with him?
0: Well, he's come on strong this year after after a slow start. You know, he always had the prospect pedigree, and people were kind of waiting for it to happen. Um, but his the big thing with him is that his hard hits of uh, of hard hits are up almost like ten, good ten percent. He's up in the leaders, fifty one percent hard hits. As his fly ball rate has gone from forty one to forty seven, and I think that that's basically all he needed. Um, I think he was probably promoted too early, and he wasn't quite ready, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think the team should do that. I think that if you have, it's better to get the reps as early as possible um, in your career, to get their major league experience as early as possible. I think that that's a, an advantage going forward, and I think it's going to pay off for them, as indeed it is.
1: You wrote that Cabrian Hayes of Pittsburgh actually turned his season around in June, but then he went on the IL, so what's he been doing right
0: I, he always had the hard hits. He's hitting the ball in the air more. And, and that's important for him because, you know, his lack of power was the, uh, was what was holding him back. He looked like he was going to be a good batting average guy with, the, you know, 20 SBs. Um, but his fly ball rate is up and his launch angle is up. and They are related. Of course, um, his sprint speed is down. Um, but he had a back injury, so I want to see how he finishes. Um, he's, he's currently 43% in, in sprint speed, but I, I want to write that down because I want to see what it is at the end of the year. See if it's gone back up a little bit, and uh, so we can count on more stolen bases. That's another team that I think is uh, on the way up, and he'll be there at the top of the uh, at the top of the lineup. He's a great defensive player too, and I always. Always in the back of my mind, when a guy is a great defensive player, um, it tells me that he's got a chance to to be a better hitter than he has shown. That goes back to Ozzy Smith. Uh, I don't know, maybe just a prejudice on my part, but I think there's a little something to it.
1: You said in the article that Javier Baez of Detroit, and I quote, remains a mystery. How so?
0: Well. I mean, we know what his problem is. He swings at everything and he misses everything. But the thing is, is that he was really great for a while doing the same things. And, you know, you could say the league has caught up to him. But you look at other guys who are similar and they tend to bounce back. I mean, it's not a fatal flaw. I mean, it's a flaw for sure. It'll keep you from being a great player, but it doesn't stop a lot of guys from being good players. Um, I was looking at the you know the, the, the top five swing strike rates this year. Besides Baez, Nick Castellanos, Luis Robert Jr., J.D. Martinez, Jake Berger, and Salvador Perez. Those are some pretty darn good hitters. Now, the other side of that coin is swinging and pitches out of the strike zone. And if you look at those leaders, then it's a little more illuminating. And that, that leaderboard is Salvador Perez, Javier Baez, Eddie Rosario, Ezekiel Tovar, and Ahmed Rosario. That's not a great list of players. But it's not – they're not terrible. I mean, they should be – Javier Baez, in short, should have an open guess higher than 5 freaking 94 but he doesn't. Um, and I, another thing I mentioned about him is when that short tenure that he had at the Mets in 2021, he was not swinging at bad pitches. He got his on-base percentage up to 371, and he was fantastic. And I was expecting big things going into 2022 that he had finally learned something, but he immediately reverted. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. What I wrote in the article was, if I'm the Tigers and I've invested, you know, 140 million dollars in this guy, I would send him to Driveline or wherever it is, and just drill this guy for months on pitch recognition and reaction, just so that he can take one or two bad pitches per game, which is basically probably all it would take to turn him into a star player again. He's not that old.
1: No, he's not, and it seems like the possibilities for a rebound and uh, when I read that in your article Gene my first thought was I wonder why Detroit hasn't done this it's not like these driveline labs or these baseball labs are a secret a lot of teams are establishing them in their own organizations just for themselves and keeping a lot of it under the under the under the veil so to speak they're not sharing their uh, their findings and they're not sharing what they're doing but the driveline labs, people know what they're doing and people know that these labs exist. So why wouldn't a team like Detroit look at this situation as you suggest and say, we've got a big investment in this guy and something's not working. Let's fix it.
0: In fact, now that you mentioned it, I'm going to ask the athletic beat writer for the Tigers to ask them that question. And again, in the spring, maybe we'll have an answer for you.
1: And maybe they'll do something about it in this offseason, uh, We can only hope. But... Uh, Baseballreference.com says that the two most similar players to Javi Baez are Carlos Correa and Trevor Story, two pretty good players. But you had a different player comp just based on your experience. Who's your comp for Javi Baez?
0: Well, it depends on how far back you go. If you remember Gary Templeton?
1: Oh, of course, yeah. Sure, he was terrific.
0: I ain't starting, I ain't departing. That's what he's most known for. But he was a an incredibly similar hitter, except that he didn't have power. But to me, that's nothing. That's just a stroke. You know, in those days, he was told to chop down on the ball and make use of the artificial turf and hit for batting average, which he did, you know, as a Cardinal, he hit three Oh five, you know, for five plus years, which, you know, that was elite. Um, and then he was traded for Ozzie Smith and the whole world said, what are the Cardinals crazy? You know, you have to remember now that Ozzy Smith is in the hall of fame, that at the time that trade re- was regarded as uh, insanity on behalf of the Cardinals. Um, they also got a starting pitcher who was half decent named Steve Muir, but irrelevant. The, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that from that moment on, Templeton basically did nothing for the rest of his career. He was always a good shortstop like Javier Baez. I mean, so he always had the glove, but he basically hit two fifty without walking and without power. Um, for eleven more years. Um, that's the guy that he that Baez reminds me of in in that he hasn't changed at all. He never he never got over his flaw or even fought it to a draw.
1: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And Gene, earlier in the show, we were talking about catchers, and I'd like to dig into that a little more as you did at theathletic.com. You wrote a piece saying the catcher situation has improved this year. I don't think anybody could deny that, especially when we start looking ahead to 2024, which is where my ears perked up. How much improvement are you talking about?
0: Oh, I think it's pretty much, uh, I mean, it's major. I'm To the point where I think that if you're in a one-catcher league, you're going to get a good guy. I mean, almost. By, you could probably wait for the 15th guy or the 12th guy, certainly, and you're going to get a good, a good hitter. Um, there's a lot of catchers who are going to catch more next year who have come up this year and established themselves. You want to be careful because catchers often do this. When they come up, they show something, and then they go into the tank for four years only to reemerge as late-blooming catchers when they're like 29 or 30. But this this crop looks is a pretty talented bunch. You know, when you go to Andy Rodriguez, Patrick Bailey, Freddy Fermin, Yiner Diaz, Gabriel Moreno, Luis Camposano, and even Ryan Jeffers. And you also mentioned later on Bo Naylor. You could add him to the list, too. I'm a little skeptical about him because... I think he may be a one dimensional power guy, but I mean you can certainly play that as a second catcher, as long as the power is legitimate, which it looks like it is. I mean if he's gonna hit twenty five, twenty eight home runs, which is what he's on a pace to do, then yeah, he's a he'd be a fine number two catcher. And that is after all the point that the catcher position is now not only better but deeper and guys in two catcher leagues are also going to be in, in better shape.
1: Two of the catchers that you really liked coming into this season, Alejandro Kirk of Toronto, Tyler Stevenson of the Reds, both having off years. Where do you stand on them for 2024?
0: Well, I'm optimistic on both of them because I think that previously they had shown enough so that they would qualify as what we call last year's bums. Um, and I also think that both of them, have picked it up recently, I'm going to be watching how both of them finish. Um, because they're still not going to have great numbers at the end of the year, and they might represent a a buying opportunity as a result next year. But they seem to be picking it up lately, both of them. Um, So that's definitely something that listeners should keep an eye out for.
1: In the case of Alejandro Kirk, I wonder if just the burden of catching kind of wore him down, even though he did a little less of it this year. He always looks tired when I watch him on TV, and maybe it'll improve a little bit to fitness wise or endurance wise, something along those lines. Uh, how do you think the 2024 catchers will rank from more or less from top to bottom or however you're going to rank them?
0: Well, I think that uh, Rushman is going to take over from JT Muto. I think he should uh, based on the fact that he's already got a hundred more plate appearances and that is, you know, that's key. I mean, that's, what keeps catchers out of the, you know, people drafted in the third round, which is wrong unless they're getting the kind of plate appearances that Rutschman's getting. So he's arguable to to go in like the third round next year. Then I think it'll go. Then I think Real Muto, and then, but then there's a whole bunch of other guys who are pretty darn good. You know, Will Smith, William Contreras, Sean Murphy, his brother Wilson Contreras. Jonah Haim, and then there's, of course, Salvador Perez, who I really doubt is finished, and he probably has another 30 overseas in him, Um, especially if he's not catching as much, which it looks like he's not going to do because of Firmin. So, I mean, that's a pretty nice bunch of guys, and I haven't even mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Cal Raleigh or Francisco Alvarez or. Uh, Caleb Ruiz, who has picked it up considerably and Elias Diaz, I don't quite know what to make of him or for that matter, uh, Logan O'Happy who is also going to catch more next year. And maybe, you know, he's got number one catcher potential and same is true of Tyler Soderstrom um, if he gets called, you know, if he gets the call next year.
1: So how do you see yourself playing the catcher game in next year's drafts?
0: Well, I think it's a great time to be reactive um, and you know take the guy at the end of the run um you know that's the way it works and you know the catchers go in in batches and if there's one guy in particular that you like, you might jump the jump the gun a little bit. nothing wrong with that um, but yeah, be reactive and uh, you know unless you want rushman in the third round, which I'm not going to argue with you if if you do that because. I think that he still has plenty of upside. Um, I mean, he could be, uh, to me, he's Ted Simmons with better defense. And and that's a Hall of Famer. Uh, So as long as he keeps on his development, stays relatively healthy, another problem with catchers. Um, But then again, DHing more helps him stay healthy. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be reactive with catchers. I'm going to take a... uh, guys that I like at the end of the first run and at the end of the second run.
1: And one name I noticed you didn't mention, Pittsburgh catching prospect Henry Davis.
0: Uh, because I don't think he's going to qualify a catcher next year. Uh, he's only caught two innings, and they seem pretty adamant about playing him in the outfield, uh, which is kind of a shame because he looks like he's he's been playing hurt. He's to the DL now, but, uh, and I think his injury was affecting his batting. But when he first came up, he you know he's he's got a live bat. Um, if they do put him back at uh, catcher, even on a part-time basis, that would be ideal for us. It would be nice if you know Rodriguez is the is the regular, and then they then Davis does qualify in season, and that's that's another guy that we add to it.
1: And if you're considering Henry Davis, you should check your league rules because he does qualify depending on how your league treats minor league appearances. I think he's got 30 some odd games in a catcher between two levels this year. I'm not entirely sure about that, but check it out. He does have quite a bit more catching experience in the minor leagues than he does in the majors and some leagues give you credit for that. So make sure you understand. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And Gene, I always like to wrap up these discussions looking at some boons and banes and with the season winding down let's cast our gaze forward to 2024 and start with your boons these are players you think look like good value for next season let's start with a batter who could be a boon
0: uh uh, the no surprise division is Gunnar henderson i think he's a superstar in the making his he's cut his strikeouts from 30 percent in the first half to 21 percent um still has a little trouble with lefties but i think that he has much more speed than he has shown um, I think he's gonna be a superstar next year um, a little further down uh, Mikel Garcia on the Royals he's an amazing hard hit rate um, I don't think he's gonna be a big power guy but I think you know given the hard hits and use of the whole field and he's gonna steal some bases so I think he's got a he's got a chance to be a like a a, a, a uh, Arias type of guy, Jeff McNeil with more stolen bases. Um, he's my boy.
1: Getting back to something you said about Henderson and, uh, he's still struggling a little bit with lefties, as you mentioned, but I believe that something you said earlier about letting these guys get their feet wet at the major league level. he started last year and he struggled more against lefties last year than he has this year. I think if you've got a guy who's got a a good plate approach, leaving him in there to hit against lefties is going to make him better hitting against lefties.
0: Absolutely agree with that, and uh, this is another thing to watch as the season ends and in the postseason, because you know he's going to see every they're going to throw every lefty in the world at him in the postseason and let's see how he reacts to it. And I would be very surprised if he doesn't do at least something against lefties and make them pay for that rote decision that they're all going to make.
1: And just mentioning Michael Garcia, Mikhail Garcia of Kansas City, a uh, Gene, uh, 20 for 25 in stolen bases this year, and he didn't play the full year. So uh, your suggestion that he might be a stolen base source, I think is wise as well. Uh, let's look at a pitcher who could be a boon for 2024.
0: The obvious one, I think, is Bobby Miller. Um, great team, great stuff. I think he's... He got his feet wet this year. Let's also, I'm watching how finish. But I have a more obscure guy, um, Ryan Walker on the on the Giants. They've been using him. He's been a he's been an opener a little bit for them, but he's also pitched several times with two and even three inning stints as a reliever, and he's amazingly hard to make good contact with, and he strikes guys out too. Um, so he's a guy, I mean, you could probably get him in the 50th round of a 50-teamer, of a but he's a guy that has a lot of potential for, for multiple inning effectiveness.
1: Every time I see a guy like this, I'm reminded of a pitcher from way back in uh, my younger days, which go back quite a few years now. And, uh, he was a pitcher who started off his career as a swing man, guy coming in for two or three innings here or there when he was young. And I think partly just to build him up because that's how they did it back in 1969 when Nolan Ryan was pitching for the Mets.
0: Yeah. And of course he's got better do. He doesn't throw quite as hard, but he does throw hard. Um, yeah I think it goes back to Earl Weaver, who, when pitching prospects came up that he put them in middle relief for their rookie year and was sort of ahead of his time, and that he learned the hard way with a with a pitcher named Wally Bunker out if you remember they brought him up when he was nineteen and he yeah was fantastic and then he hurt his arm and he was never the same and I think that Earl Weaver took that lesson to heart
1: and doing it that way also allows you to put the pitcher in to situations where maybe the pressure isn't quite as great or you as a manager, you look at him, you think he's, this is a good three or four next hitters for him to face because I think he can dominate them or he can get them out and build up uh, the pitcher's confidence in these somewhat easier situations so that when tougher situations come along, he's not beset by his own demons.
0: Yeah. Although, you know, uh, I don't mind if they, leave him in to get hit a little bit because all pitchers get hit um you have to learn to live with it um you have to learn to rebound from it especially when you've been the kind of guy you know all these guys have been the best player on the field since they were eight years old right and, and now they're in the big leagues and that you know and it's a tough game um so you have to you got to get tough at some point too I know it's a fine line you don't want to destroy the guy but at the same time you got to toughen him up So you can do both in this, in this situation at the manager's discretion, which is, you know, that's what managers are supposed to do, right?
1: Yeah. And I think it should come from the higher levels of team leadership. I think the general manager and manager need to be on the same page about a lot of this stuff and the successful organizations. That is how it works. Going back to Earl Weaver, I think he kind of was the organization and anybody who kind of challenged him on what he was doing did so at their own peril. But I think smart organizations will say the general manager or the the staff will figure out, you know, this guy needs to be brought along. Maybe we should suggest to the manager. The manager gets on board and says, we'll run this guy out there occasionally as San Francisco, a very smart team, I might add, seems to be doing with Ryan Walker. So it could be that uh, the organization could be a help when you're thinking about a guy like Walker.
0: Yep, absolutely. I agree with that. And of course you get the ballpark too.
1: So let's go to your Baines. These are players you think will be disappointing next season. Who's a batter you think could be a bane?
0: All right. Uh, I, I'm going to catch hell for this. But Juan Soto. I mean, Juan Soto has slugged 469 for two years now, which ranks 28th in baseball. He's hit 250 over that period. I'm not saying he's a bad player. He's not. He's a very fine hitter when you add in all beyond base and the walks. I just don't see him as a superstar. Not in this game. Not with the guys that we have out there. Um the guys with you know, with with potential and not and with actual too. So I am there's no way in the world I am taking Juan Soto unless he is a gift. Or if I'm in a non-base percentage league, that's a different story. But in a batting average league, let him go.
1: Yeah, two hundred and fifty just isn't getting the job done. I I saw in that draft you referred to earlier that was set up uh, an actual draft that they're doing. The, they did the first seven rounds, and I saw Juan Soto again went pretty high.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, when he first came up, he was he was different. Yes. Um, he's not, he's, he suffers from J.D. Drew syndrome. You know, I, I J.D. Drew took more two zero three one fastballs right down the middle than any hitter that I ever saw. To his detriment. Not that he was a bad player, and Juan Soto was, I think, better than J.D. Drew, at least as a hitter. Um, and he could turn it around with a change in attitude or a change in aggressiveness. Maybe he gets traded to another team. So maybe I'm wrong and maybe I wind up with egg on my face over this, but I'm not betting on it at that high level where he's going.
1: The three years from 2019 through 2021, he was a borderline $30 five by five player. The last couple of years, he's been more like a $20 player and everything about his stat line is going down, has gone down. And I think I'm with you. I don't think I'm going to invest a top pick in a guy who seems to have set himself a new level in baseball, and the new level is not what the old level was, frankly.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I'm a little insecure about, uh, you know, I feel like I was going out on a limb, and he exalted Juan Soto to disparage him, but I am. Well,
1: his was OPS for the three years that I talked about earlier, 949, then one year over 1,000. And then the third year back in the high 900s, last couple of years, mid 800s. This is not looking like some kind of anomaly. It's starting to look like this is who he has become.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think he could change it with a more aggressive approach. I think he could. That's no guarantee. But in the meantime, he's, he's entered the show me ranks.
1: You know, one of the images of Juan Soto that sticks in my head was we were at first pitch a couple of years ago and, and, uh, he was playing for Washington. I think it was the year that they won the world series and he was in the batter's box and the pitcher threw him a, a pitch that wasn't hittable and Soto just grinned at him and with this malevolent grin and he kind of adjusted his cup as if to say, you know, grab a pair And I thought to myself, this guy is like, (laughs) he's got the right kind of attitude to succeed at this very difficult practice. And the last many times I've watched Juan Soto on the late games out of San Diego, he just seems to be not embodying that same kind of aggressive attitude.
0: Yeah, there's a listlessness about that whole team that, you know, it seems to be the talk of baseball this year is now is how they're underachieving compared to what they should be. And it is kind of a mystery. I think it's probably worth digging into and see under the surface, if there's something about the team in general that that is, they're just all, none of them are as good as they should be, it seems.
1: I remember years ago reading a story about the, uh, uh, San Diego Chargers. This might even go back as far as the American football league days, but certainly it was in the early days of their NFL tenure. And, the point that was made in the story by the writer was San Diego is just too nice a place to live. You know, you can't, you can't keep that razor's edge when you're lolling around in 75 degree heat year round, lovely ocean breezes, you know, uh, all the all the amenities of having money in a town like that, uh, it's not a place where you raise warriors was the point the guy was making. And certainly Juan Soto has seems to have changed and the change coincided with his move from Washington, which is no uh, San Diego, weather-wise and otherwise, to, uh, to paradise.
0: Interesting. Well, you know, what Dostoevsky said, that if all human beings had everything that we wanted and were living in paradise, we would be eating each other within a week. <laughs> <laughs> a little and, extreme, Fyodor, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> Point taken. Point taken. Yeah, and
1: finally, who's a pitcher who could be a bane for twenty twenty
0: four? Oh, he was my bane of twenty twenty three, and that is Dylan Cease. I mean, he just he's just killed me. He's my he's my he's on all three of my teams, and he's just been terrible. His velocity is down a little more than a tick. Um, the team is terrible. He seems to have no plan of how to set up hitters, and um, the organization is in disarray. I don't think that there's anybody there that's that's in a position to help him. Um, so I'm staying far away from him next year.
1: Gene McCaffrey's boons: Gunnar Henderson of Baltimore, Mikael Garcia of Kansas City, Bobby Miller of the Dodgers, Ryan Walker of San Francisco, his Baines, Juan Soto of San Diego, and Dylan Cease of the White Sox. Gosh, Gene, a pleasure. Uh, Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work.
0: Well, I'm at theathletic.com. I'm finished for this year, but I'm going to start soon. Next year, I'll be doing all the position rankings um, for the hitters. Um, So that will come out probably, you know, right after the Super Bowl. I'll be working on it uh, hard. It's going to be a long thing. It'll be – I try to, you know, do every player that's going to have impact on – twenty twenty four it's not a cursory thing, and some some players I go really deep on, I hope, and I hope I come up with angles that that'll help you
1: and that's the kind of work that ordinarily or in the past would have been in the wise guy annual
0: exactly in other words, I do the same thing I always do, except now I'm doing it for the athletic
1: and uh have you heard any good bands lately?
0: you know? I heard, I think they're a Canadian band, and I don't know how new they are, but I heard a, a really good song by a band called the Duke Spirit. You heard of them? I haven't, no. You know, check it out. I mean, uh, I don't know how new they are. To me, anything in the 2000s is new. <laughs> uh, but musically, I don't know if you remember, I was doing something with the, with a, a gal singer who's the daughter of one of my best friends. And we had do, done some recording. And now she's out in L.A. She's opening for Stevie Nicks. She's playing at Madison Square Garden uh, in December. She's been touring. Stevie Nicks loves her. Um, she goes under the name of Sil, CIL. Um, It's modern pop music, and it's not my cup of tea. But she's a great young gal. She just turned 21. Um, she's a great young gal. and I hope she makes it big without killing herself.
1: (laughs) Isn't that what you said? Uh, I remember way back when we first met at First Pitch Arizona, gosh, 10 years ago now, maybe. I don't remember, but uh, we were watching a ball game. You, me, and John Menno were sitting in the stands, and you said, I don't know if you were quoting somebody or if you just made it up, but you said, the thing you want to do with your life is find something you love and kill yourself with it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you go. Right? I, don't know if I, I don't know if I thought, I think I did think of that, maybe, but it seems the sort of thing that anybody could have thought of. But anyway. Yeah, but I hope rock and roll can kill you faster than anything. But um, I, hope, I mean, she's a sweet girl and I hope that she, I saw her over Easter and she was, she seemed to be in, in, in good spirits, even though at this level of the music business, it's so hard. You're not making any money at all. You're working like a dog. You know, you're just waiting for that one, you know, to catch the one song, but she's writing her own songs too. It's not like she's, you know, beholden to, uh, to songsmiths. So she's got a real shot. She's got a tremendous singer, not my cup of tea, the music, but you know, it's modern pop. And if you like that, you know, maybe you'll love her.
1: And you know, the thing about all of that too, is with the development of Spotify, I think people are still not aware of how badly it's, it's stratifying the music business into like the top 1% who make a hundred million dollars a year and everybody else makes 50 grand if they're lucky.
0: Oh yeah. And and something else, you know, I know we're old timers, but will these old guys just go away? (laughs) I mean, the stones, you know, I love you guys, but, Give it
1: up, would you? You're right. Somewhere the other day, I saw—I'm not making this up—I saw the Who final tour, <laughs> and I oh, thought the, the Who final tour version twenty-six. Yeah, the
0: <laughs> eternal, <laughs> the eternal, the
1: eternal, the eternal final tour. Eternal final tour. I honest, to, honest to Pete, I can remember the Who final tour when I was a kid, and I'm no kid.
0: Are any of them still alive? (laughs) (laughs) It's the Who almost, almost the Who, almost our last tour. Yeah. Uh,
1: (laughs) Several members of the Who and uh, several members not necessarily of the Who. The the thing about all of that kind of stuff, I I think the Eagles is kind of the same thing. I saw a live concert clip on YouTube of an Eagles show recently, and they're another band that does, you know, final tours on a fairly regular basis. and you know, singing is a young person's game. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. I saw Sinatra when he was 70 in New York City and he sounded great, but I saw him a, a year later in, in another concert in Calgary and he, he sounded terrible. But in general, especially rock, pop, those kind of music forms, it's not a, it's not a business for an old guy.
0: No. It's, and the creativity seems to desert them. And at best... They wind up repeating themselves. Um, and at worst, they just, you know, and usually they repeat themselves, you know, to less and less effect in the law of diminishing returns. Um, I mean, when was the last great song that Pete Townsend wrote? 1972? You know?
1: <laughs> well, every 50 years, you know, something comes along. <laughs> right. Right.
0: There you go. Uh, anyway.
1: Gene, thanks a million for helping us out. I'll dig up a song from either Duke Spirit or Sill or both. I presume maybe they're on Spotify. And if I can, I'll I'll throw them in at the end of the show for people to listen to. And uh, if not, I won't. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know I won't be seeing you in First Pitch, Arizona. So take care. And uh, I do hope I'll see you soon somewhere.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. It's always a true pleasure to talk to somebody who knows what he's talking about. Thank you very much.
1: Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. Remember, we'll have a couple of tunes from the acts Gene recommended in a CODA segment right after the main part of the podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and my extra innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can really make or break a fantasy season. This week's Daily Collapse report covers new arrivals, including top outfielder prospect Evan Carter in Texas, top shortstop prospect Jordan Lawler in Arizona, Cincinnati right-hander Connor Phillips, and New York arrivals Jason Dominguez, Ronnie Mauricio, and Austin Wells. In the Eyes Have It column, HQ Scouting Director Chris Blessing continues looking through the lower levels of the minors with reports on St. Louis outfield prospect Chase Davis, presumably to help you decide whether to chase Davis, and Cleveland outfield prospect Jason Churio, yes, the little brother of Milwaukee top prospect Jackson Churio that Ray and I talked about. And finally, in the Eyes Have It podcast, Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey look at a slew of catching prospects. Comprehensive prospect coverage is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. In fact, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, player injury analysis, gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections, updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
2: Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the frequent flyer. And here with a look at Milwaukee left-handed starter Robert Gasser is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
4: He's been a strikeout machine in the minors, extolled the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's Kurt Hoag on August 30th. In fact, he's been, Cardone continued, one of the best pitchers of the AAA International League, which has seen offensive numbers explode across the board in 2023. True statements, but perhaps they're understatements. Here's why. Through September 8th, 25 starts, 24-year-old Milwaukee Brewers left-handed starter, Robert Gasser, currently leads the minor leagues with 160 strikeouts in only 130 innings pitched, translating to a dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine, further sustaining an excellent 28% overall strikeout rate in 2023. Strikeout Machine, who has reportedly put himself in the conversation for a possible September call-up, according to Brewers manager Craig Council, as quoted by Hoag in the same August 30th Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article, Indeed, MLB.com's Adam McKelvey also speculated on August 26th, a few days earlier, that perhaps Gasser would get the call at some point in September. However, as McKelvey pointed out, Gasser is not currently on the Brewers' 40-man roster. That's why 24-year-old Milwaukee Brewers strikeout machine Robert Gasser, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a late-season flyer if he is still available in your redraft or dynasty league. Worth noting, you may remember that Robert Gasser was part of the package sent to Milwaukee by San Diego in 2022 for then-Brewers superstar closer Josh Hader. Did we also mention that Gasser is the number one prospect to stash in 2023 on the latest PitcherList.com September 2nd entry? Nevertheless, Gasser lacks frontline velocity as low 90s fastball, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst. However, Gasser's four-seamer averages roughly 14 inches of induced vertical break, offering him an option up in the zone, according to MLB Pipeline's pitching lab. Additionally, Gasser's two-seamer breaks 16 inches to Gasser's arm side, left side, and the slider moves the same amount, 16 inches, to Gasser's right side, glove side, creating a slower, mirror image of the sinking heater that befuddles batters from both sides, as described by MLB Pipeline. But it's a true slider, Gasser told MLB Pipeline Sam Dykstra on August 21st, since it gets 16 to 20 inches of horizontal brake. So I like that a lot, Gasser continued, especially with some lift, 10 inches induced vertical at times because nobody's back path is going up and to the left. Or if the circumstance calls for it, I could go back foot to a righty, Gasser told Dykstra. Either way, maybe circumstances call for adding. 24-year-old Milwaukee Brewers, perhaps soon to be called up, strikeout machine Robert Gasser. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week, I want to talk about the end of another HQ Radio regular season. This is the
2: end, my only friend, the end.
1: Well, with the baseball season winding down and my real life getting busier, this will be the last Baseball HQ Radio podcast of the 2023 regular season. Right after the season ends, we'll have our traditional postseason roundtable with Todd Zola, Ray Murphy, and I gathering to dish out our fantasy player awards and to discuss the big stories in both the real game and the fantasy game. The baseball season, of course, ends on Sunday, October 1st, so Ray, Todd, and I will have that wrap-up roundtable ready for you on Tuesday, October 3rd. We opened and closed this season of Baseball HQ Radio with Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, and in between our uniformly excellent and informative guest experts were Peter Kreutzer, who writes the Rotoman Guide at Substack, Tanner Bell of Spart Fantasy Baseball, and the co-author of the comprehensive fantasy baseball book, The Process. We had Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports, Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, still going strong after these many years, Glenn Colton of Colton and the Wolfman on Sirius XM. We had Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and the ATC Player Projection and Valuation Systems. He appeared twice on Baseball HQ Radio, and I returned the favor by appearing twice on the Beat the Shift podcast, including last week, in case you just can't get enough of me. Tim McLeod came on from Fort Francis, Ontario, and Prospect361.com. Tim's a great guy and our go to guy for Japanese and Korean baseball. We had a visit from Derek Carty, the Bat and Bat Projection Systems guy, and Zach Waxman of the Draft Champions podcast and other podcasts. Paul Sporer of Fangraphs came by. He's the host of the Sleeper and the Bus podcast, of course. We had Mike Curland of Gaining the Edge, the Athletic, and the Bases Loaded podcast. Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, The Launch Angle Pod, and the other co-author of the Process Fantasy Baseball book. Vlad Sedler came by, the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and the co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball podcast. We had Eno Saris of The Athletic. We talked about putting the mustard on things, but not fastballs, on BLTs and other sandwiches. I mentioned Rob DiPietro when I was talking with Ray. Rob came on from the Deadpool Hitter Patreon and Podcast and the Launch Angle Podcast. We had Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, Justin Mason of Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple podcasts, Greg Jewett of the Reliever Recon website, the Lineups Outlook column at Baseball HQ, and closer reporter for The Athletic, Rob McCabe was an interesting guest. He's a fantasy baseball researcher specializing in NFBC fab analysis, and he does a really good job of it. Jason Collette came by from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and XM, and one of our regular roundtable stars along with Ray Murphy. We had Nick Pollock from PitcherList.com and Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. What a lineup. And of course, we had our regular weekly contributors, Alex Becky, brought us all those frequent flyer segments, alerting our listeners to such potential fantasy assets as Oakland first baseman Ryan Noda, Minnesota second baseman Edward Julian, Cleveland right-hander Gavin Williams, Seattle right-hander Bryce Miller. How about this one? Alex said, take a look at Cincinnati shortstop prospect Ellie de la Cruz. Minnesota shortstop Royce Lewis, Cincinnati left-hander Andrew Abbott, Atlanta right-hander A.J. smith Scheuer, Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage, Baltimore third baseman Jordan Westberg, how about San Francisco left-hander Kyle Harrison, Mets shortstop Ronnie Mauricio, St. Louis first baseman Lucan Baker, San Diego catcher Ethan Salas, a top stash, and Yankees outfielder Jason Dominguez. Pretty good track record there. Baseball HQ scouting team analyst Rob Gordon brought us the Minor League Minute, bringing our attention to names like Detroit cornerman Justin Henry Malloy, the Cardinals Matt Liberatori, and the Marlins Yuri Perez, Arizona right-hander Brandon Fott, Reds third baseman Christian Encarnacion Strand, and shortstop Matt McClain, Detroit third baseman Colt Keith. Rob also talked about Reds shortstop Ellie La Cruz, Also, San Francisco outfielder Luis Matos, Oakland catcher Tyler Soderstrom, Baltimore outfielder Heston Schurstad, St. Louis shortstop Mason Wynn, Mets second baseman, shortstop third baseman Ronnie Mauricio, and San Diego catcher Ethan Salas, Washington outfielder Dylan Cruz, and Pittsburgh right-hander Paul Skeens. I also want to thank our HQ Radio newsmen for the season, Ray Murphy and Chris Olson of BaseballHQ.com. Did yeoman's work getting to all the top stories and analysis from BaseballHQ.com so we could bring them to you every week. And Ray, of course, gets extra credit for the HQ Radio roundtables and for all the -the behind-the-scenes support he provides that makes Baseball HQ Radio possible. I also want to thank my dog, Leo, who sometimes missed out on his afternoon walk because I had a podcast call or because I was producing or editing the show on Friday afternoons. He's a good boy. And finally, I want to thank my wife, Lisa, who puts up with all the time I take putting together the pod every week and all the shushing and requests to mute the TV while I'm recording. We're going out to dinner tonight, and she gets to celebrate the end of the podcast season. So that's it for the 2023 regular season of Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks to you for all your support and kind words on Twitter and through email and in person at First Pitch Arizona and other venues. It might sound corny, but it's a real shot in the arm to hear from you that you enjoy the show and appreciate the work that goes into it. And even when you have suggestions for improvements, the segment titled Boons and Banes, which we all love, came from a listener. So good luck the rest of the way this year, and even if there's no pennant or prize money payoff. keep fighting for every point. It makes you a better player. Remember to stay on after the end of this show for a CODA segment featuring those two musical acts Gene McCaffrey recommended during the show. The young woman he mentioned, Syl, her name is? You gotta hear her to believe her. What a voice. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio almost every week. And in the end and that's baseball hq radio for friday september the 8th thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season our last episode of the regular season i also want to thank our guest expert for this friday full edition gene mccaffrey the wise guy of fantasy baseball and the fantasy baseball columnist at the athletic Gene is a longtime friend of the show and of mine. He's a great storyteller and long one of the best fantasy writers in the business. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch News Analyst was Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Casts, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, well, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com thanks again for listening we'll be back again on tuesday october 3rd with our annual end of season roundtable edition as i mentioned earlier in the show with todd ray and i giving out our fantasy player awards and discussing the season it's the end of season roundtable on the october 3rd edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners it is baseball hq radio we'll talk with you again on october 3rd and for now so long
3: The program is produced and edited by
0: Patrick Davitt.
1: Hey, welcome to CODA, an added bonus featuring music I think you might like to hear. Earlier in the show, I asked our special guest, Gene McCaffrey, if he'd listened to any music lately that had caught his attention. Now, the reason I asked, you might not know, Gene is a really fine rock and roll singer and guitarist in his own right, played the clubs in lower Manhattan, that whole scene. He's a fan of the New York Dolls. And if you didn't get the reference earlier in the show to Billy Mercia and Jerry Nolan, when I mentioned Gene's different drummers, well, Billy Mercia was the first drummer of the New York Dolls. And when he left the band, Jerry Nolan took over. Anyway, I also asked Gene if he'd heard anything he liked, and he mentioned a couple of acts. The first one he thought might be a Canadian band, so of course I was interested. But it turns out that the Duke spirit isn't Canadian, nor are they from Durham, North Carolina, for that matter. They're an English rock band based in London. I listened to a few tunes. They kind of remind me of Blondie, pre-parallel lines. Maybe also the Jesus and Mary chain? I don't know. Listen for yourself. See what you think. The song is called Surrender, And on Gene McCaffrey's recommendation, this is the Duke Spirit on CODA on Baseball HQ Radio. That's The Duke Spirit and Surrender. Band members Lila Moss and Toby Butler also play together in the electro-rock duo Roman Remains, if you want to check that out. Our second musical coda has a connection to Jean of a more personal nature. As you heard, her dad is one of Jean's best friends, and Jean is probably the first person to ever record her after he heard her singing at his piano. They went to The Blasting Room, a top-shelf recording studio in Fort Collins, Colorado, And they cut a few songs just to get her started. Well, the guys at the Blasting Room, all music industry veterans, said she's the best singer they've ever recorded. And when you take a listen, you might just agree. This is Sill. It's spelled C-I-L. And this is a song from her first EP, Tears Dry on Their Own. The song is called Try.
2: I'm sick of counting on my ribs Hollow cheeks on paper thin Making sure I'm never full so I can stay this beautiful. Traded all my happiness for nothing but emptiness. I'm body checking off the days. Young and yet my body aches. I don't know how much I can take. I can't go on living this way. It's time for her. so e the boys she used to love who never loved her half as much and tell
1: That's Syl and She's Just 21, and how about that voice? She reminds me of Amy Winehouse, you know, that vulnerable, bluesy R&B. It's really terrific. Her uncle was in a band called The Records. Don't know if you remember them. They had a terrific power pop hit in the 80s called Starry Eyes. They're really well-known in England. He helped Sill do some demos, got her a deal with Warner Brothers. You haven't heard the last of her. I know I haven't. That's Coda for this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hope you enjoyed it.
2: Baseball HQ Radio.